In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 2030 to 2043. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 2030. Story number one. They are coming, written by ice cream and wine. The meeting of the United Nations P5 was going well as usual. The British and American delegates were deep in conversation with each other. The Russian and Chinese delegates glaring at each other. The French delegate sulky because the other four had tired his incessant babbling about the cultural importance of Quebec. The dull roar of background noise ceased as a figure in green and yellow spotted vaguely humanoid shape alien materialized in the chamber. The Chinese delegate tried to stand up. He started to say, Be silent. Be seated and be still. The alien waving his arm up a pedage. No talk, only listen. None of the five delegates, nor their aides or support staff, could move or speak. The alien speech was understood by all of them. Who we are is unimportant, said the alien. Observe, the alien said. A screen appeared in thin air. The screen played a montage of scenes of green and white spaceships, hundreds of different types, huge, large, small and minuscule. The ships were engaged in a space battles above different planets. These are the implacable, and they are coming. We do not know their real name. It is irrelevant. They appear in a system, consume all life, and then move on to adjacent systems. When I say all life, I mean all biomass is consumed. Then the planet is stripped of resources and left barren. We first encountered them over 27,000 of your years ago. And for the last 27,000 years, we've been running. It seems that only a small fraction of them pursue us. The main body always sticks to the same path. That path will intersect with your system's orbit. They will discover and attack you. We estimate that you have 80 to 120 of your years before they arrive. In galactic terms, your species is nothing special. More imaginative than most, but average in everything else. They have consumed many civilizations that we know of, and probably many more that we are not aware of. Civilizations that were far ahead of you in development, armed with weapons, shields and ships far outstripping what you possess, that availed them naught. Those who fought were defeated and consumed. Those who could ran, and as far as we know, are still running. I stand here to offer you information, the combined knowledge of dozens of species, this is all we can offer you, for when they arrive, we will be long gone. This is all we can do for you. We can offer you no strategies, no ships, no technology, no aid, just the information we have on the Implacable. This information is in a form that you can retrieve and understand, the alien said. On the table on top of which sat five USB sticks materialized in the chamber. These USB sticks, as I believe you call them, contains over 110 exabytes of information each. Use them as you will. Farewell. With that, the alien dematerialized. Five delegates looked at each other, open-mouthed. The Russian delegate searched his feet. What trickery is this? he shouted. The British delegates wandered over to the table and wrapped his knuckles on it. This sort of trickery that can fashion items out of thin air and nail us to our chairs, apparently, he said. He continued, each USB stick is resting on the flag of our five nations. He moved his hand. Also, I can only pick up the stick resting on our flag. The other four moved to the table. If they tried to pick up differently flagged USB sticks, their fingers just passed straight through. Well, that's the best damn trick that I've ever seen 
said the American delegate, looking pointedly at the Russian delegate. The French delegate said, I suggest that we take our designated stick and communicate with our respective governments as to what to do next. Agreed, said the Chinese delegate, scooping up his indicated USB stick and vacating the room. The other four delegates looked at each other and followed suit. End of story. Story number two. New Threats, written by Neil Lithy. You know, fellow human, you're acting more calm than we anticipated, despite the situation you're in. Interesting disclaimers for a human and despite the situation. So, you must be used to what? Crying? Mulka's ears flicked for a moment. Well, actually, yes. We usually get the smaller ones of your species and they are quite distressed. Blue rubbed her temples, adjusting a circlet, holding back her hair. Smaller. So you are not really a Weru. Let me ask you a question. Are you a parasite taking over that body, or was it grown for you to wear? His ears flicked out in time with one another. No parasite in a host body. You have encountered such beings. Blue shook her head with a half smile. Oh, we imagine a few different scenarios. Not your primitive minds can foresee such a thing as quite fascinating. How did you know that I am not Wuru? The human laughs as she pats her belt. Yeah, but this one is a bit slow on the list, you know. Taking a small metal instrument from her belt. See, a Wuru finding a spoon on my belt like this would piss himself and would not leave it on me. Probably would have stripped me to the skin to be safe while I was still unconscious. His ears finally focused forwards, seemingly excited to learn something new. An eating implement is something the Ruru fear. The human laughter was light, almost musical. <laughs> no. See, I was on leave traveling to see my brother and his new place. Met some of those wolf guys. May have had some words with their leader. Since then, I'd been given a special chit to carry this little souvenir on my belt. It helps when dealing with Wuru and those that have faced them. No. The bit is Wuru have some common knowledge. We don't have smaller versions. Wilkes was baffled. But both of your species do. We have examined them outside and in. They are just smaller and weaker than the standard size of your units. Blue held the spoon by the bowl thoughtfully. So you know, my call sign is Wolf Hunter. Books was twitching, barely having seen the human move, the handle of the spoon through its eye and into its processor. The human's words coming in as a growl. They are cubs and children, or just children of both species. The sound of explosions as the room shook, and my squadron is here now, so no more reason to be gentle. Deirdre Blue O'Shea, Lieutenant Commander of the Duck Dodgers Squadron, left his interrogation room. The sensor impressions of the fighters coming through her halo, the migraine coming from the controlling craft remotely, making it hard to keep a balance, rotate, lock, fire. A human in a lab coat rushes to reach her. He is taken by surprise as a spoon handle enters his ear. Then it becomes a blur as she staggers to the hangar. Her plane, half-folding and putting thrusters on the deck and extending an arm to her. Once in the cockpit, she manually triggers the canopy and armor shield before pulling off the circlet named a halo. Pulling on a full helmet, the sensor input from her craft smooths out. The rest of the transformation to full humanoid and all the unease slips away. Yorktown skin jobs confirmed. End of story. Story number three. Time for a human. Written by Drunken Turtles. Walking down the broadwalk, I noticed an elderly human sitting by the water's edge. 
a wooden rod in hand. Any other day, I would have paid no mind to the strange display from the strange humans. But my curiosity peaked, and the weather was nice enough to warm my blood. I approached the human, stepped off the sidewalk and onto the hot sand. Bold human, why do you sit here? He looked back and chuckled. Come, sit next to this old man. Enjoy this moment while I fish my food. Catching your food? To save the time and effort, the local market sells sea creatures. I questioned his illogical motives while taking a seat on the towel he laid out. The old man placed his fishing rod and the tube lodged into the ground. Oh, you idiots. You get too caught up in maximizing your time. I am savoring the moment. That seems ridiculous. How do you savor something abstract? Perhaps humans had some strange sense of taste, but this one sounded nonsensical to me. He rubbed his white beard and wiped the sweat off his bald head, looking down at me. A smile grew across his face. Use both your hands, scoop up the sand, and don't let it slip through your talons. Uh, just try. The old man instructed me. I did so, confused as to why I should try and hold sand. Naturally, all the sand, except for a few grains, slipped through my talons, not wanting to be defeated by such a simple task. I did it again, and then again. By the fourth attempt, I looked up at him, feeling frustrated and puzzled. Why are you having me do this? Is this some exercise in futility? He laughed and then coughed a bit, clearing his throat. He explained, <coughs> You could call it futile to hold the sand, but that's what you do with your life and your time. I tilted my head, still not understanding what the old man was getting to. If the sand is time, then the grains are countless moments that make up life. So many of us waste away trying to hold a few grains and our fingers can grasp. Few can see the full beauty of all those grains form. Now, look up and tell me what you see. I looked around. Well, a lot of sand, correct? He shook his head and gestured to the beach around us. Look again. Think. Something suddenly made sense to me. An enlightenment of souls watched over me. Grains. Countless moments. That's it, he chuckled, and placed the rod in front of me. Now you see the full picture. All those grains of sand that make up the stream we call life. Without thinking, I took a hold of the fishing rod. The heat, the warm sea breeze, and the rhythmic tugging of the waves on the line made this moment tranquil. Many fond memories of a younger, happier self that I'd forgotten flooded back into my mind. He placed a hand on my shoulder, and with the other held a drink humans call the beer. Take a step back and slow down for a bit. Start living right now. End of story. 2031 Waste Disposal Written by Saxophone Yeti At a confluence of two fundamental laws of physics exists the first law of waste disposal. A. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. B. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Given A and B, we can prove C. If you make something or do something, there is always waste. Maybe it isn't as elegant as the first two, but I'm a garbage man, not a snooty professor, so sue me. Every shirt you sew, every ship you rivet, every planet you terraform, how? Even something as simple as baking a loaf of bread leaves behind water. 
flour, CO2, dead yeast, and God knows what else. And that's just the beginning. When you eat the bread, as the parjants say, everybody excretes. Doesn't matter how efficient you are, because everything always makes waste. Before my people set sail on the Great Black Fleet, our ancient scientists worried that entropy was going to kill the universe. We'd either freeze to death or burn to death, depending on how the math played out. They were right about entropy, but wrong about the burning and freezing parts. See, the universe is going to die, choked on its own crap. We used to put our garbage in dumps, then the dumps got full, and the gas started poisoning the atmosphere. When we went to space, we picked a planet for our new mega-dump, which worked for a while. But eventually, there was so much garbage that the whole planet collapsed in on itself and made the galaxy's worst smelling star. Until it exploded. Turns out garbage isn't the best fuel for stellar fusion. Then, the space lane started getting clogged up, because we'd been venting too much plasma on our FTL drives. Someone had the bright idea to do the star thing again, but on purpose this time. We built a whole system and then entire galaxies out of our waste. But every move we made just made the problem worse, and we were pushing a runaway train downhill. I don't know how many galactic clusters that we've explored looking for a solution to this problem. Some jackasses even built a megacomputer for some super-intelligent AI to solve the problem. After a millennium of work on it, the AI gave them the finger and quit. I heard it opened a nice restaurant in a quiet part of the home cluster, and is much happier now just biding its time until the end. We lost count of the centuries our people have been sailing the void long, long time ago. Our domain stretches billions of light years across. And sooner or later, we're going to reach the end of the universe. And then, we'll die. We have known this truth for as long as we've been sailing. We've met countless races, countless peoples at varying stages of development. And all of them understood this fundamental truth. Except humanity. We didn't realize it at first, because when we first visited their colony worlds, everything just seemed really clean. Alabaster buildings reaching up through the atmosphere, puffy clouds dropping drinkable water onto sustainable farms, starships sipping antimatter fuel. The atmosphere was always tweaked to be just the right mix of components. But everybody has garbage. They must be hiding it better than we could see. Temporary pocket dimensions, high-yield plasma storage, time-dilated waste extractors, all things that we'd been doing for countless years, and the bill always came due with interest. We watched and waited and watched and got distracted and came back and still nothing. Sparkling clean, it was enough of a curiosity that even the Black Fleet Admiralty wanted an answer, so they sent me to ask. As I walked down the streets of old High Terror, I saw children playing, old men sitting at cafes with their tea. Businesswoman, walking with purpose in and out of offices. It was so normal. There was no existential dread, no acknowledgement of the looming end of the universe. Humanity should know this. I stopped for a moment to sit down on a bench. I looked up and saw the blue sky, breathed in deeply, and collected myself. There was dirt to be found here. Not literal dirt, of course. The flowers beside me grew in nutrient-rich soil that was as perfectly manicured as everything else in this strange place. I stood up and made my way towards the destination, a short, rotund building with the sign Waste Management above the door. Hello, welcome to WM. Care, what can we do for you, uh, sir? 
the chipper attendant greeted me from behind her desk. Oh, yes, um, I have a meeting with Mr. Shaw Mori. He should be expecting me. This meeting had been arranged at the highest levels of government. Curiously, the humans seemed happy to accommodate our request. Most cultures regarded their garbage disposal techniques with extreme secrecy, in case they could somehow be used to prolong their time in the universe. They never could, of course, but it doesn't hurt to try. Yeah, of course, I'll let him know that you're here. You can head over down the hallway and to your left. As I walked down the shiny hallway, the door opened in front of me. A man stepped out with a friendly and genuine smile. Hi, welcome. Uh, you must be, um... He paused and furrowed his eyebrows. You can call me Tu Le Yan. Then the family life ship prefixes are just a formality, I said, trying my best to mirror his polite demeanor. Well, Mr. Loyan, please, uh, come in, sit down. What brings you here? I must say, we don't often get visitors. I almost snorted. Of course, they don't get visitors. The security measures surrounding this place must be so well hidden that our scans had missed it. I wouldn't be surprised if I was the first non-human to enter within 50 kilometers of this facility without being vaporized. In fact, I'd wager my ship that the city, the humans outside called it Paris, wasn't even real. Just some clever charade. They were more cunning than I had first estimated. I decided to put my cards on the table. Look, Sean, the Black Fleet Confederation wants to know how you people keep your world so clean. We haven't seen a single molecule out of place, and it's freaking our scientists out. I've been in a waste disposal my entire life, and my family have been proud garbage men for generations. We need to know what you are doing. They could revolutionize the field across the known universe. I am authorized on behalf of my government to pay... Oh! You want to see it? Easy enough. Follow me. I was taken aback. I was about to offer Shaw untold riches, access to technologies beyond his wildest of dreams, just for the tiniest scrap of information. And he was going to show me the inner workings of their entire operation. Just like that, my heart jumped. If these humans really had a new technology that could manage garbage, my family name would go down in history. They might even make me an admiral. And Shaw was going to show it to me for free. I was giddy as a child before his first stellar jump. Shaw stood up and walked across the hallway to a smooth steel door and pressed down on the handle. It opened immediately to his touch, indicating biometric scanning in real time. This must be serious. As the door opened, Shaw said, Well, this is it. I peered inside. Hovering silently was a sphere of some kind. Light seemed to fold in on itself, and every color was reflected onto the walls of the room at once like a rotating prism. The object itself didn't seem to have a shape or color or any static form for that matter. The light was cascading in on itself like an infinite fractals, shifting and rotating and merging, all white standing still. What could it be? An undiscovered higher dimension waiting to be filled with trash. A new form of plasma storage. A parallel universe, Saw said, seeming to anticipate my question. We tried sending probes over, but uh, they kept getting torn apart in pure energy before they came out on the other side. How much? What can we fit in there? Well, as far as we can tell, it's about the same size as our old universe, and since everything comes out as energy on the other side, the upper bound is higher than math allows us to calculate. We've got some very smart people trying to figure out how new ways to answer that particular question. Why? This, this changes everything. This reverses entropy. Why haven't your people told anyone? Uh, no one asked before you? Shaw shrugged. We're happy to share, 
There's a network of artificial wormholes across all human space uh, that pipe into this facility. You're welcome to tap into it or expand it. I nearly fainted. I was looking at the face of a god, the answer to the greatest question posed in all of history. Eternal life, meaning to existence, all of it, here in front of me. I fell to my knees and wept. How? I asked the only question my mind allowed me to think. Accidentally, really, uh, some punk kids took a portable wormhole and put it inside another wormhole inside of a pocket dimension. Look, looking back, uh, we, we think there's a 50-50 a chance it, it could have ripped apart the fabric of space-time. Yeah, guess we got lucky. I couldn't comprehend what I was seeing. I had to return to the fleet. Tell my people. Tell everyone. I have the answer. Humanity has the answer. It is a miracle that we go down in the great annals of history and cement humanity's place in the savior of all life. Scourge of entropy. Champions of the universe. Shaw shook his head and went back to his desk. Deep inside the fractals, past the Big Bang, past the clouds of hydrogen and helium, past the stars and planets and the ripping expansion of time itself, past cooling rocks and primordial ooze, past amino acids and DNA, past evolution and technology, past the launch of the Black Fleet, past the boot-up sequence of the intelligence, past the first contact of an upstart race of neat freak carbon-based life-form planetary colonists, a signal lit up on the bridge of the GCA to Alamar, Cubanel, and Mull, and I picked up the phone, the Apple, wanted me to go talk to the humans and ask them what the heck was going on with their trash. Nobody should be able to keep their operation that clean. After all, the confluence of the two fundamental laws of physics exists. The first law of waste disposal. End of story. 2032 Story number one. Nomads of home. Nomads of soul. Written by DM of the tomb. We are the nomads of home. Such a strange line, one in which we never understood until the answer was right there in front of us. Even then, it was hard to believe. Our home, that is to say our home world, had for thousands of years been completely explored and long since been all but abandoned in favor of a nomadic lifestyle amongst the stars. Our ancestors, who were herbivore crazes, had always had a deep instinct to keep moving and traveling yet, at the same time, wanted the safety and security from predators which a stationary shelter provided. Quite contradictory, we know. So it seemed that when we started leaving the safety of our homeworld to spread out across our galaxy, we had finally made the decision to be nomads over the safety of staying stationary. We would only come to regret this decision generations later, when it was far too late to go back and change our minds. Even though we had spread out without any major outposts on the planet, our people still somehow managed a single species-wide feudal-like government. Instead of a sex of territory governed by nobles who answered to a central ruler, fleet commanders resided in massive space stations often many miles in diameter. These stations' main purpose was to act as a greenhouse for growing food for the array of personal ships that would follow and contribute to towing the station along with the fleet. Even in FDL. Every station noble would keep in contact with the other fleets and coordinate travel plans, emergency meetings, and adding to each other's star maps. It wasn't a perfect system, but it worked for us for generations. And soon, nearly an entire quadrant of our galaxy was populated with our nomadic people. All the while, 
We had been surprised by the significant lack of other life. Sure, there had been other worlds with bacteria, or even sometimes some primitive algae. That was about it. That was until some poor, small, unnamed fleet of family ships came across who would become to known as the Still, since their true name remains untranslatable to us even now. The Still were a race much older than our own, and it seemed only fitting that they had originated from a near opposite side of the galaxy as us, for they were in almost every way our exact opposite. Where we were small nomadic herbivores, they were hawking ambush predators, where we had quickly spread ourselves then across our quadrant of space as nomads, they had only slowly spread across space in mostly internal military conflicts. Despite their slow progression, they had been here much longer than us, and had thus populated nearly every habitable world the other three quarters of our home galaxy had to offer. We don't know for sure why they started the war. Was it because they saw us as an unwanted intruders, were we simply a prey species that they had eagerly waited for? Or had we offended them in some way? We don't know. But it took us by surprise, and it hit us hard. Our feudal-style government was slow to organize itself in any meaningful way. And even once it had, we were still stretched too thin and were far too unorganized and unarmed to make a real difference. Radio channels, FTL transmitters, solar wind vans, gravity springs and so many other forms of communication were all cramped full of single messages from us all to the void. Help us! It was all we could do. Our fleets would only run so far, you see. Ships from the still were massive and bulky vessels, meant for armored combat, but they were slow. So that organized effort of our government had been to just flee. We'd gotten cornered at the edge of the galaxy. We knew for a certain fact that it would take only a year for the still to catch up. We were gathered in a literal edge of our own galaxy. Beyond was nothing. No chance of survival. Nowhere to run. And so, when we called out to the void at our backs, was all we had. We didn't know if there was even anything, let alone anyone out there. There were so many warships of the still ahead of us. We were desperate and figured it was worth a try. But that desperation paid off. You can imagine our surprise when just a month before the still was scheduled to catch us and finish us off, a voice from the void had answered our call. It was faint, but it was there, and it gave us hope. Perhaps we could tell these strangers of who we were so that our people would not only be remembered as a meal, but the voice came from the void, transmitting an advanced blink channels which we had only just recently developed in these war times, was not offering to be a witness to our end and remember our trials. Instead, they offered exactly what we had called out for, to help. We didn't get to talk long or even send them any information about us other than our coordinates. They simply said, We are nomads of home. We will come to you. And then we lost their signal. We had thought that they had decided to just ignore us. We were wrong. Soon the day came when the full force of the still fleets arrived. We could feel the subtle rumble in our ship's bulkheads from their large ships dropping out of FTL and could see the warm glow of their weapons charging to shred us to slag. But then a new sensation flowed through us. The rumble of the bulkheads where subspace was distributed from FTL travel. But this 
was not a faint shaking. This was a roaring cry from the void behind us. All of a sudden, that warm, growing glow of still weapons in front of us became unnoticeable against the harsh and blinding beams of light coming from behind us. A crashing and booming voice forced through every speaker on our ships, and presumably the still ships too. It echoed with the confidence and authority which we'd only heard in legends. We are the nomads of home! We are the nomads of soul! Looking back at our distressed ship scans and visuals, we could see what their nomads were. An entire solar system. One star, nine planets, an asteroid belt, and billions of ships size varying from house to size of small planets. These humans, as we learned they called themselves, had brought their entire solar system, perhaps their entire species here, to us from across the void between galaxies. We would learn later that the humans had achieved what our ancestors desired, but never even conceived. Using something I once heard a human call a jacked-up Kaplan thruster, they turned their entire solar system into one massive ship. You see, humans are very stubborn creatures. When we had the choice to either stay on our home world or explore the stars, we chose to explore. The humans, on the other hand, decided not to choose either, and instead take birth. They stay in their home solar system, and they take it with them across the cosmos. They are the true nomads of their home, always safe and stationary, while still having the universe in their grasp. End of story. Story number two. Return, written by British Tea Company. Have you ever wondered what 20,000 warships clustered together in a single solar system, coming towards a single target, and bearing down on it would look like. Can you imagine the countless munitions being fired all at once, the trails of ordnance as they flew across space, illuminating the darkness for just a brief moment as they splashed against their targets, tearing through shields and shattering hulls? Can you imagine the shock of seeing that many vessels randomly appear at the edge of a system the sheer surprise of the sensor officer seeing that many blips appear right on his screen. Can you imagine the frantic comms officer as he does his best to hail the approaching bogies? Or the terror of the commanding officer as he sees hundreds of thousands of weapons warming up? Everything pointed straight at his station and every vessel nested around it. Earth, the most vile world in the known galaxy, Home to countless vicious creatures with an atmosphere and climate so volatile that even the hardest of races would dismiss it from its flora and fauna alone. The task force station and its orbit had been at odds since their assignment began. Three hundred years later, not a single expedition had ever been mounted on the planet's surface for fear of its volatile climate and its vicious life forms. The main event, however, had returned. Fear was no longer regulated to the unholy presence of Sol system, but the entire Milky Way. On this day, the galaxy shuddered as news hit every major civilization. Many denied its plausibility. Some refused to believe it. After three centuries, Terra Incarnate returned. From the depths of unknown space to where they were first exiled, the human empire had returned. My brethren, after three centuries of exile, after all the humiliation, defeat that we had endured, the galaxy has tasted our wrath once again. 
They have grown soft and lazy in the absence of their nightmares. Tomorrow we remind them of the dread eternal which they will endure as we seize the reins of this galaxy once more. But for now, as we shatter their timid tower around their homeworlds and brought back to the world they consider to be unholy, there is only one thing to say to our blessed race after we finish our first step. Welcome home. End of story. 2033. Story number one. The Demon Lord and the Ambassador. Written by MWMN19. An offensive stench of sulfur and rot was the first thing that met the Ambassador's nostrils. Fortunately for his guards, they had masks on their faces, which made the smell less invasive. The sight within the massive chambers was akin to some kind of medieval fantasy, a cathedral of sorts. But instead of gold, there were bone ornaments that adorned the walls and ceiling of the dark chamber. Tall gods were lined in formation on either side of the large chamber, plate armor with many pointy ends. In the distance, sitting on an iron throne, gazing with his fist holding up his head, down on the ambassador and his guards was an equally armored man or demon. He had an aura that emitted a sensation of dread. His expression could be seen. The ambassador's best guess was combination of irritation and impatience. Maybe boredom. They walked down an old red carpet, probably pillaged from some king chamber or in another world. Once they arrived closer to the figure that would best be described as Sauron from R.R. Tolkien's book, lifted up his head and measured up the diplomatic party. I have to say that your abode is, uh, quite spacious, the ambassador said whilst fiddling with his hands nervously. What do you want? A deep voice bordering on a growl exited the metal helmet of the Sauron ripoff. We are here to have a, a, a diplomatic talks. Um, uh, we want a ceasefire, the ambassador said, this time much more confident. You ask me, the Lord of Darkness, for a ceasefire? The demon said, bellowing out an amused laugh. You humans are funny sometimes, but I have to give it to you that all of your armies were quite strong. But now that I've destroyed them, you are in no position to argue for peace. The only reason I let you inside was out of curiosity. Out of all the worlds I burned down, this one is most interesting. Hear us out. We are here, the ambassador began before he was cut off. You are in no position to argue, human. I will burn down this world as I did countless others. Your armies are crippled. And by the size of those armies, I can say that you have little population to replenish your ranks. Your technology and weapons mean nothing if you have no men to wield them. I have entire worlds that'll march against you. The ambassador looked at his guards, who were now on high alert. The ambassador fixed his tide, cleared his throat, and began to speak. The Lord of Darkness, as you call yourself, is wrong. We indeed are in a position to argue, and those uh, armies which you are speaking of weren't armies... Uh, those are scouts. The demon leaned back on his throne. Scouts! Then the real battle will begin soon, and your armies will be crushed. 
I will send hundreds of thousands, if need be, to destroy them. And even if you kill them, I will send thousands more. The ambassador raised his brow before he reached into his interior pocket, retrieving a piece of paper. He unraveled it and looked at its contents. I'll read you an order from the Global Coalition that was just issued just yesterday. Just a part of it. The ambassador cleared his throat and once again and began to read. Da-da-da-da-da. The new knowledge of the other dimension, blah, blah. Ah, here it is. The order of general mobilization was issued on the 30th of March, 2054. Every nation in the coalition is to supply weapons, vehicles, and manpower for the liberation of coalition territory. The ambassador folded the piece of paper and returned it to his pocket. In other words, Mr. Lord of Darkness, the entire planet is hell-bent on eliminating you. The scouting group consisted of 10,000 men, was nothing. You did suffer much casualties. By our estimates of up to 250,000 before the scouting group was overwhelmed. Sadly, reinforcements didn't come in time. Now, let me give you some statistics. Off the top of my head, the U.S. will supply 200,000 men, the U.K. 50,000, Russia 100,000, Germany 20,000, France 30,000, China 150,000, Italy 10,000. For a total of 560,000 soldiers and thousands of tanks and armored vehicles with full air support. That does not include the mobilized troops which count in the millions. By the earliest estimates, we are able to arm around 50 million men and women for the fight. Though that number will increase significantly in the coming months. The demon looked down upon them in silence. Moments later, someone barged into the chamber. A small goblin-like creature ran towards the throne in panic. My lord! My lord! It exclaimed in a high-pitched voice. What is it? How dare you barge in like this? The small goblin creature kneeled down and extended his hands. Within them was a letter. My lord, I apologize, but the information is very, very important. The demon scoffed and rose from its throne, grabbing the letter. Opening it, he silently read it. What? How is this possible? The demon exclaimed, ripping the letter in two. He kicked the small goblin creature, launched it at least ten meters back. Off with you! The demon exclaimed, then looked at the ambassador. How? How did you do this? The demon's voice was very first time, but exuded a tone of fear and weariness. Oh! I forgot that our nuclear armaments were also set on high alert. Your camp on the other side of the portal you set up just got a taste of human shock warfare. The hydrogen bomb is a force that can't be trifled with. Uh, I'll give you a fair warning. This marks the beginning of the operation. The leaders of the world were listening in on this conversation, and you got a unanimous conclusion. The ambassador smiled. I apologize, but I must leave now. Soon this place is going to turn into a battlefield, and I wouldn't want to be in the way of our military's artillery. The ambassador turned around and began walking outside. You! You will pay for this, human! You will pay with your soul! The ambassador stopped for a moment, turning his head to the side with a grin. Welcome to Earth! Before turning around and walking out, leaving the demon lord in silence. End of story. Story number two. Warmth and Fire. Written by Rientific Theory. When we found the crash, they looked so helpless. Strange bipedal bodies scattered by impact of their ship and the careless curiosity of my classmates. Samur wanted to leave, disgusted by the disrespect of others. But I noticed in one a quiet flame yet remaining. We carried it home, hoping for more explanation than the autopsies of the others. However, 
when its brain grew steady, when its eyes slid open, no sounds came forth, only gentle streams tracing down its face. We were not savages. We understood the mechanics of several species' language, but we were not prepared for one whose language had no speech. Our little ember made only gestures, though it watched attentively when we vocalized. Writing progressed slowly and only with pictorial aid, but it allowed us to connect gestures to certain ideas and objects. Most the basics of food, water, and rest, but understanding slowly grew between us. It had a name, written, but without the knowledge to speak it, I called it Taj, an old form of the glyph for little flame. At the insistence of Taj, we soon returned to the impact site. I did not know what it hoped to gain, but as information was scarce, I hoped that something might foster true communication. I think that it was there within the shredded body of the ship, surrounded by the broken bodies of its kin, that I first truly saw. The quiet pulse of Tarja's fire momentarily fled before it fell to the ground and wept. I sat quietly, and in time we plied the earth to bury its pain. A new day came, and this time gave more than it took. Tarja retrieved seven images of others like it, and seemed to be saying that they were not at the crash site. I hoped to placate Tarj, and Simur quickly painted a likeness of the first image, with flowing hair and piercing grey eyes. So unlike Tarj, yet its language was clear when it asked to hold the work. Simur huffed and began another, but Tarj was already lost in the flowing paints. Taking Tarj into town was unwise. The hot-blooded creature, with its pulsing flame, drew a crowd, and with it the answer to Tarj's near-frantic singing of others, Merle. The Beastmaster had acquired them, and I said, yes, Taj, disconcertingly bared its teeth like an animal, before I followed with, bad. It stared, confused, before its quiet melody of heat sped up and took a strange undertone, where? When Simur, abhorrent of the surroundings, Morel pitted alien exotic animals against one another in popular and violent matches, Taj looked in every direction like a, almost like a frightened to knock but with heat and confidence in each step. Forgetting the contradiction, I spotted Mohal in the same moment he noticed our approach. Simon looked ill. We arrived. Mohal was negotiating a match for the grey-eyed one. Taj immediately pointed at it, and the gesture, give. I gently pulled him back before desperately asking to speak. Mohal believed Taj wanted to fight the grey one, and offered me a sum that nearly stopped my heart. When I corrected him and asked for the release of sapiens, he laughed. When I sadly turned to Taj to tell it no, I realized it had already stepped forward. Buddhishly, I realized it could understand, not just speak. I watched as Mohal cowered back. Taj had somehow acquired a full-length hunting claw, and, as we stared, I saw its little flame grow into a twisted inferno. By right of violent conquest and a lack of counter-challenge, Taj gained uncontested ownership of Mohal's sordid empire, a monument of suffering torn apart for one grey-eyed human. That is, when the ship responded to their distress beacon, we greeted them with all honors, tearful and happy they reunited, that quiet little flame dancing in all of them. End of story. 2034 Story number one. Welcome to the Masterclass, written by Deathclock36. Humans were a new species, perhaps not new, but new to us. Their application to join the United Systems had been received shortly after first contact, 
and had been duly approved shortly thereafter. Humans had appeared, first in small groups, then in a flood as they strove to consume knowledge of the wider galaxy, as though they had been starved for millennia, which I suppose was true. Their traders and merchants were loud and brash and seemingly in awe of the plethora of products that could be bought and sold on the galactic scale. Many Glarak merchants were forced to stand by in absolute befuddlement as the human traders seemingly had a meltdown about something as simple as star salts. Human products soon flooded our market and it was now the Glarak merchants turned to stand waiting while a confused human wondered if they were going to buy the silk cloth or begin worshipping it. Our lasting surprise came when we called upon the human military to make its contribution to peacekeeping, as all member systems are required to do. As a test of their military capacity, we invited them to take part in a war game with several of our leading militant races. We did not expect much from the mercantile humans. Surely, their military might, such as it was, must be for the protection of trading caravans. More used to seeing off the poorly trained and equipped pirates that sometimes raided for riches in other sectors. How wrong we were. Reminiscing about the events of the first war game causes great amusement nowadays. But let me assure you, dear listeners, that at the time, it was a diplomatic disaster. The humans arrived in their ugly box-like ships and marched down the boarding ramps in perfect lockstep that would and did put the Sakari infantry to shame. Perhaps it was a professional jealousy, but they were wildly derided in the staging area for showing up with their newly forged pulse rifles without effective body armor or hovering tanks. They looked for all the galaxy, like children come to play soldier in the flak armor with crude rotating wing aircraft and noisy monstrosities that rolled along on the ground on tracks. Befitting their status as both newcomer and merchants, they were assigned as the opposition force. They were to take positions and hold them while the real soldiers had a nice warm-up rolling over them in the first stage. Their grizzled-looking general simply nodded curtly when informed and returned to his troops to begin the day-long preparations before the assault would begin. Our militant races enjoyed a day of R&R, laughing and mocking the humans who labored out to sight, prepared to get the objective that they would dismantle in mere hours for the following day. When the suns rose the next day, the United System's military might formed up in an unstoppable hammer of pure aggressive force and charged the objective en masse, each of them eager to haze the little merchants into a proper place. It was a massacre. Luckily, only non-lethal ammunition was supplied, otherwise the United Army would have been crippled by the afternoon. The hammer came upon the objective town to find the veritable fortress, miles of trenching, earthen walls and brutal barbed cabling that the humans are so fond of. Undeterred, the army plunged headlong into the defenses, being met by a wall of disciplined and accurate pulse and artillery fire. Casualties were astronomical, the attack lasted only for an hour before the United Army pulled back to lick its wounds and what wounds they were. Around 30% of the infantry and 65% of the armored units had been sent from the field, rubbing sore limbs or trying to get their disabled tank restarted. Surprised but unbowed, the United Army redoubled their efforts and made a series of lightning assaults all around the human perimeter. They didn't even reach the defenses. Before infantry could finish warming up, humans would appear and wipe them out before clambering about a swift wheeled transport and disappearing before reprisals could descend upon them. 
Airfields were attacked from unexpected quarters deep within friendly territory by small mobile units of elite human soldiers and their flyers were disabled before they could get off the ground. Tanks were lured into ravines and forests by fleeing human armor only for that armor to turn around on them and tear them apart in vicious melee firefights, picking the United Armor apart piecemeal. The United Army suffered terribly. A further 40% of the infantry and half of what remained of the armor were sent back to the staging area. The air fleet was annihilated almost completely. Again, the United Army pulled back. With night falling, they decided to regroup and rethink their strategy before continuing the assault the following at sunrise the following day. They did not get a chance. Human artillery began the surprise counterattack with a planet-shaking bombardment. Under the cover of the rain of shells, human armor supported by infantry roared into the chaotic mess that was the United Army camp. When the artillery stopped firing, the human flyers screamed overhead, spewing tides of happily non-lethal ammunition and airborne soldiers. The attack lasted two hours after the dark and every commander on our side was captured or killed in the first 15 minutes. The rout was total and victory went to the humans. The following morning, the victorious human general addressed his fellows with the first words that he had spoken. As the exhausted and humiliated United Army commanders sat in the briefing chamber in one of their ships, General Hansen made his appearance. Gone was the split polished dress uniform. The man wore the same simple fatigues and black armor as his men, the only difference to his rank being a badge on his hat. He took the podium as his opposite numbers glared at him from their ranks. He stared around the room for a moment, seemingly weighing the quality of those around him. How have you all survived this long? He said as he smiled. That was an amateur hour out there. I have rookie units, green as the sky on this planet. Who would have done better than the pride of the galactic army? There were murmurs of distaste at this point, but no disagreement. How could we disagree? A force one-fifth the size of our own had wiped the deck with us. Now, here is what I propose. You all submit yourselves to some training under a couple of our officers, and we'll see if we can't make soldiers out of you yet. The following months were difficult for the diplomats. There were threats of mutiny and counter-threats, in somewhat poor taste, truth be told, of sending the humans to sort you out. But in the end, the general got what he wanted. I now congratulate you all on your day of graduation from General Hansen Military Academy and wish you all the best in your coming careers amongst the stars. I leave you with the general's motto to keep in mind as you keep peace in the wider galaxy. Never! Underestimate your enemies. End of story. Story number two. Courtship behaviors written by Marilyn of many. This space station marketplace is bustling with crowds and conversation. But when a voice spoke from behind, I was pretty sure the question was for me. Can I ask you something? Said the nervous voice. I turned to see a feathery alien of species I hadn't met yet. Looking like a flustered eagle. Oh no, more like a secretary bird. Those with long leg ones with kick snakes, right? This one had a shiny white feathers with a pearlescent shimmer and some very anxious body language. Sure, I said, prepared for anything. Was this a question about the courier ship that I come in on? A question about earthlings? Something for me specifically? Option B. 
Do humans do mating dances? The bird asked in a rush. Uh, sort of, I said, thinking quickly. We have dances with a lot of people together, and courting couples might use it as an excuse to show off or get close to one another. Matter, not individual dances? The bird asked, fidgeting with clawed fans. Those claws were painted with what looked like human nail polish, awfully similar to the color my cousin was fond of, called pinking of you. Maybe sometimes, I said. Why do you ask? Pearl white feathers ruffled into an endearing puffball. My advances are being ignored, the alien admitted. I'm starting to doubt whether my human even realizes. We've been working together for many cycles now, and I th like to think that we know each other well, but... The alien drifted off into a plaintive chirp. Has the human done anything that looked like a courtship gestures to you? I asked. Maybe. I don't know. I thought the food sharing was just kindness, but it's become a regular thing. And surely asking to wear one of my shed feathers as a decoration is significant, right? I, I don't, don't know anymore. Wait, I said. Is this the human with the blue hair that I just saw over that way? The one buying a feather care kit and a necklace with a heart-shaped pendant. The bird-like alien stifled, feathers smoothing out. A heart shape like this, I said, tracing a heart shape in the air. It's a sign of love. It is. Feathers fluttered everywhere as the alien hopped in place. Is, is that why? I, I had no idea. Uh, go talk to your human, I said. Maybe you can eat food and go dancing together. I will. Thank you. The bird pranced off, jumping to see over the crowd like an excited teenager. I thought about calling out directions to the nearest dance club, since this space station had some great ones. But it occurred to me that the human probably knew, and they could probably find out together. End of story. 2035. Geneva Checklist, written by Swegler. The scout ship Fragger approached and began a landing procedures with a rogue planet rather far into the depths of space. And while a rogue planet isn't terribly uncommon across the galaxy, this one was. It was an unremarkable planet, average size for supporting life. The faint remnants of a magnetic field suggested it once had one strong enough to blanket and shield life from the harshness of its sun. Strangely, a fine dust coating the planet rather than the typical still and frozen landscape. But what made it stand out was a thick and slowly pulsing red grid orbiting and encompassing the entire planet. Unbeknownst to the crew of the Frogger, they had discovered a tomb world, one that was a memorial and a warning set loose across the stars for people to discover. Scans of the planet revealed that the entire planet was perfectly covered in this fine dust, sometimes kilometers thick but all bar what appeared to be a medium-sized complex situated at the magnetic pole of the planet. It seemed that the complex had been spared whatever had happened to the rest of the planet, with anything within a five-kilometer zone was perfectly preserved, while anything intersected with the border was split cleanly whilst one and half joining the dust, and the rest not. From orbit, it appeared the complex was utterly devoid of life with no electromagnetic emissions or thermal signatures to indicate any activity. But as the landing craft approached the facility, they picked up a weak signal peaking just over the background radiation. The signal itself was nothing special like the crew would expect a distress signal to be. No signs of quantum repeating, subspace or hyperspace distortions, nothing like that at all. 
Only one crew member feeling a deep unease and scouring the sensor readouts found the signal. Similar to a pulsar emission, it was simply a repeating set of pulses cast into the darkness. Carefully exploring the complex revealed what while the outside looked similar to any other military headquarters or capital building, the interior had been altered with the walls and floors ripped and forced so that every single route only went to the heart of the complex. In the heart they found a small living space, only fit to house a single being, but not for very long, as indicated by the desiccated remains of an unknown species that still sat at the console long after it had expired. To their surprise, the console did in fact power on when one brave crew member touched the screen, a musical bing, making the exploratory crew glad for the plumbing in their suits. The display was alien to the team but totally unfamiliar to anything that they had seen before, in spite of its apparent age. And after some trial and error, they had figured out how to operate it somewhat to discover that only things contained was a series of video logs and what appeared to be an ability to upload a separate storage medium. Wanting to be out of this place and to get the feck out of Dodge, to borrow the phrase they copied the contents of the console and left. Glad that no defenses blocked their aggress to their landing craft, and no batteries blew them out of the thin and still atmosphere. Of all the fragger, the crew decided to upload their findings to the ship systems and try to view what they had found in some relative comfort. This was in part aided unintentionally by some software included within the download that carefully broke into the translator and installed the translation for Uridanish without the crew noticing. Opening the first, and estimated to be the oldest file, that if the recording date noted from the console was to be believed, was around 8,000 cycles ago. They were greeted by the image of a deceased alien at the console, very much alive, but not looking much better than they had found it. I am the planet leader, Urblat, last in line of the regimency for my species, Uradranish. But, to be more accurate, I am the last of the Uradranish alive. I was the leader of my species, and I drove us to the brink of near extinction because of greed and my hubris. My people have been reduced to a single fraction of our own population and replanted elsewhere across the vast universe, and I have been left alive in the ruined capital of our whole world to act as a herald by their own tongue. It is my punishment and a warning for those who find me. The crew of the Fragger looked at each other in concern after just hearing the first few sentences from this defeated and sickly being, but decided to press on to see what else the Urblot had to say. Ours was a large empire that spanned hundreds of systems, Urblot started. We were not alone, however, as there were a number of smaller empires that made up the consortium that we barely bothered to join. The largest members were ourselves, the Wabar, the Tyrrell, Pat, Yatar, and lastly, the humans. As the video ended, the Urblat started coughing fit and reached towards the camera. Surprise swept through the crew at this. They knew humanity just as well as any other species traveling the stars. They were the diplomats, aid-givers, and trustworthy traders across space, yet they were surprised to hear them mentioned here. The next video showed Urblat quite worse for wear. Their eyes were bloodshot when purple blood appeared to be leaking from their mouth and what they guessed to be their ears. My folly was believing that humanity was pacifists, successfully only in their abilities to trade and make peace. 
They didn't even defend their own stations and instead hired other species for that task. We thought that they would be easy targets to subjugate in our empire. Slaves to make us all richer, but my people and I were mistaken. I started by hiring some of our species pirates to target their more remote station, promising amnesty and the spoils to those who would do my bidding while preventing scrutiny from the consortium. My cabinet loved this idea and followed me blindly towards our doom. The crew of the fragger looked towards each other, but not a small bout of nerves. They, after all, would engage in acts of piracy to make ends meet, and they all knew that human stations and ships tended to be easier targets due to the fact that they rarely, if ever, offered any more resistance than a disapproving look across comms channels. As we expected, the few hand-picked remote stations and frontier stations offered barely any resistance at all, Oblat continued. They gave up their goods and equipment almost willingly, at least to us, which offended the pirates we had hired who decided to commit the second great mistake. Their captains ordered some of the humans shot despite their full cooperation. While the Frogger's crew looked at each other over in confusion, Oblat continued on, unsurprisingly ignorant of their confusion. They had committed the crime of killing unarmed civilians, Something which we would learn far too late was a nigh unforgivable to humanity. I don't know how, but those pirates were tracked back to us. My government and myself, and despite the surprisingly substantial evidence included, we played ignorant to them. And why wouldn't we? The humans sent us a diplomatic envoy hoping that a physical being would be less easy to ignore for us. However, we ignored them for an entire cycle while the carefully planned raids across human space continued. With each new raid, the humans added that to the evidence that they had on us, and the diplomatic request changed from negotiations to the cessation of hostilities, which we still ignored. Eventually, we decided to blot their envoy out of our skies to stop their pathetic pleas and annoyance, they had just sat in orbit in their pathetic craft, sending their requests for an entire cycle, expecting simple words to work, having been apparently too weak to bring together any kind of force to bolster their claims. This was the third mistake at the start of the war for us. We killed their diplomat who sought peace and made our goals known to them. Captain Grog looked over around at his crew or aboard the fragger. Black precipitation forming on their head as their concern grew. Everyone knew humanity was soft targets for piracy, with himself targeting them once or twice when it was that all run out of supplies and fall into the nearest stellar mass. But war. Humanity at best had a handful of system pickets defending their core systems, and while their shields were the best around, everything surrounding those shield systems were woefully underpowered. How could humanity even wage war, much less to the extent of the apparent eradication of a species? They were pacifists who rarely took in defensive actions, even for themselves. They were the peacemakers of the galaxy. They reliable traders, not warmongers, far from it, Grok thought to himself. With a considerable degree of hesitation, Grok selected a third out of the five video logs recovered from the planet. Humanity targeted our remote military installations first, and simply destroyed them. 
I still have no idea how, but all we ever found were brief snippets of distress calls and expanding clouds of fine dust where those installations were. Even our secret ones, somehow. Using this chance, I officially declared war on humanity, citing these strikes as acts of aggression. I used their retaliation, thinking it was the doing of common mercenaries, as an opportunity to invade their space. They called it escalation of hostilities, and they were right, as my fleets were redirected towards their system, seeking false revenge, and in response they covered their worlds and stations in shields which glimmered in the darkness of space, like jewels to snatch. My fleets fired upon their stations and planets and found that unless we focused their entire might of multiple ships, we could make no progress against their defenses. But we did, in the end, and attacked with reckless abandon and, to my shame, glee. Grack pondered the significance of this new information, and while outright war is fairly rare in the galaxy, this was to his knowledge how it was normally fought. At least, that was their experience when offering their services during the occasional civil war broke out. With the payback remaining undisturbed, Urblatt continued on after drinking some last drinks of what appeared to be water. The speech clearly taking its toll on the obviously weakened being. While my fleets assaulted their stations and planets, the humans continued to broadcast what seemed like an obvious bluff. Cease your hostile actions or we will be forced to defend ourselves. We ignored them, thinking that they were obvious bluffs from a weak race trying to buy time for hired mercenaries to come to aid. But we were, of course, wrong. Monster first projectile, plasma lance, beam, or whatever hit their hull. It no longer matters what I do and do not know. They defended themselves. Mahima's ships uncloaked across the systems, looking like space itself shattered like dropped glass. Their previously harried smaller ships almost woke up, as if from slumber, and outpaced and outran our own interceptors, and moved with the behemoths to disable our ships. At least, what we were able to recover from a few ships functional enough to flee to hyperspace. Despite their apparent escape of our more agile survivors' ships, they were followed and hunted like prey until they managed to flee past humanity's borders which should have been impossible with drive scientists and engineers everywhere agreeing that each ship that enters hyperspace enters their own almost dimension, unless physically tethered together would be separated during transit. But our survivors were not chased by the vastly more agile small human ships. They were all chased by a singular behemoth ship, despite the light years of distance that was going between our survivors. The behemoths were chasing them all at exactly the same moment and simply forcing its way through the energized plasma of hyperspace to pursue them, broadcasting nothing and not even gloating when it atomized a few of the survivors. Just silently chasing us with only the ship's name lit up by the harsh bright lights against the black of its hull. Erblant stopped speaking at this point and appeared to be steering itself for the next part. Body language software threw up a few tentative guesses to his emotions while he breathed thousands of years in the past. Fear, shame, and reluctance were the highest possibilities thrown up. You asked for it was the name of the behemoth when translated from human script to our own. And it was right. We did ask for it. 
My fleets were hopelessly outmatched against the humans. Entire formations reduced in the blink of an eye to a fine dust. Even with shields up and at full integrity, did nothing to stop them. When my captains realized this, they were perhaps outraged and decided to commit the third and fourth greatest mistake against humanity. Oblat took a steadying breath, eyes lost in thought as he began to continue again. Some of the captains decided to capitalize on the small holes punctured through the human shields and began death runs, turning their entire vessels into ramming weapons and setting course for any opportunity that presented itself. Both military and civilian targets were chosen without a care for the consequences. Ships from my fleet, from fighters to frigates to large carriers accelerated towards their chosen targets their frames liquefying from the stress and heat generated by engines forced far beyond their designed outputs, yet still accelerating towards their targets and steaming incandescent metal to the void as they did. The military targets fared well with only a few being struck by my ships that managed to hold together enough through the defenses of their now unlocked stations, yet achieved little bar scratching the paint in the hulls. The civilian targets fared far worse, having been wiped off the surface of the planet by impacts similar in magnitude to a 7th Dreschap 5km asteroid strike due to the velocities involved. This was a third great mistake of mine and my species blindly followed me in committing more of the same by targeting their population centers. The fourth great mistake was thanks to the handful of ship engineers, perhaps fevered in the knowledge of their impending deaths aboard the death-run ships, decided to bathe themselves and flood the decks in an already supercritical engine coolant. Whether they wanted to die by their own hands or the minds were broken from the stress, I will never know. But the after-effects were pronounced as the chemical structure of the coolant was altered by temperature becoming supercritical. It became highly corrosive to carbon. My people are what the humans call silicon-based life. So while the corrosive properties did little to us, bar simply melting us and the ship thanks to heat, they were devastating towards humanity and the terraformed life on their plants. Once the coolant was released, either intentionally before impact or was vaporized by the impact, it was released into the atmosphere. And within hours all life on that planet, Greta's harvest, if I'm correct, was destroyed with withered to nothing. This was the fourth mistake we committed against humanity, either accidentally or deliberately by our forces that began to dump canisters of supercritical coolant on humanity's other worlds after witnessing the power of such improvised weapons. Still, the mistake was made. We began to commit chemical warfare, Oblat said, after a few seconds, fear visibly making him shiver as the third video file ended. Grack opened the fourth file despite the protests and obvious fear from his crew. The video started with Erblat staring at the camera, visibly in worse condition than in the previous recording, as indicated by the shriveled appearance and missing scales. Erblat started with a shaky sigh and looked down briefly before finally starting to speak. Whoever you are, you may be wondering how I know so much details about what happened and why I refer to what some may consider typical warfare tactics as mistakes. So I will tell you how and why before I finish the task as Herald.
Humanity, alongside their hidden martial prowess, are skilled and precise historians. If you have had the chance of meeting them, you would know this. They record everything, and while not using their technology often, they are skilled in hacking and taking data from other races' systems, with no one being any the wiser. This is why if you have been wondering your systems can even display these messages as well as understand me perfectly. As part of my task, they left me with a destroyed whole world, with my every recording they captured during our one-sided war. Every action and transgression that involved anything belonging to humanities correlated into information that was forced into my brain so that I would know my folly completely. So that I could better record these messages as a warning to all those who encounter it. Humanity follows what it calls the Geneva Conventions, that date back far into the past from planetary war before they were capable of accessing orbit. These conventions are their rules to warfare designed to prevent what they view as atrocities against themselves. These rules forbid certain types of warfare being engaged and were mutually agreed upon by the majority of their world's factions before unification and have been updated and maintained to still be relevant into their future. But when they were broken, firstly they will engage to attempt to stop the act and fall back on their imposed pacifism. But heed this warning as it was the doom of my species. Anger the humans enough and those Geneva Conventions become the Geneva Checklist. And for each further transgression their hostilities increases. This is not to say they become bloodthirsty killers one and all. Some directly affected might. But they still as a whole excised undeserved restraint towards us. Not that we deserved it in the end. With that, the fourth file ended, leaving all aboard the fragger worried what the last would hold, and out of the morbid curiosity, Grack opened the fifth and final video. Oblat was from front and center, as is in the prior videos, and while he looked somehow worse for wear, he appeared almost relieved, in a sense. Perhaps finishing these messages for the future were cathartic for him in a way, but the crew listened on to find out more. The human fleets came for our systems to at first try uh, to parlay with us, trying to prevent any unnecessary bloodshed on their part, and we refused them. My own fear and hubris ordering my remaining fleets and military forces to not communicate, and instead fire upon the humans as soon as they were spotted. Even now their response gives me chills despite centuries having passed. The only thing they broadcast was... Oblat took a shaky breath and stared directly into the camera. So be it. Oblat seemed to deflate in the recording and lose the last dregs of his energy ripping out from him with those three words. Within ten minutes, by their timescale, they had wiped out every periphery system we controlled, leaving just the system of our whole world left. We thought this impossible as one by one each system fell silent, after their response was forcefully broadcast at once across every single data stream and sensor in those systems, leaving a dead silence after those three worlds. The humans, for some reason, left our home system be for a week, by their time scale. I suspect so that the remaining population would notice and understand what had happened to their fellow Uradradish. Their friends, family... Children and strangers, only connected by racial identity, were all gone. 
After that week, the human armada appeared perfectly at once, completely encapsulating the system with their behemoth ships and blocking out the very stars from view. The entire armada was completely motionless, with their drive seeming able to ignore the fundamental inertia that affects all ships in hyperspace. Only one ship had its transponder activated, and broadcasting, and that singular ship out of half a million broadcast their demands for our surrender. This ship then sat there and waited for a reply from me, as I was the only one left holding any real authority for my people, and much of the blame. In my rage over the destruction of my species, I activated our last defense as a weapon to target that singular ship, broadcasting its name as Greta's Fury. This defense system was a system to locally molest space-time in a set area, slowing and speeding it up as a method to divert or block incoming attacks away from my system. A truly sophisticated system used for a crude purpose. I used it to accelerate the local time of my system's asteroid belt to cause those asteroids to collide with the human ships. And this was the fifth and final mistake against the humans. Temporal warfare is included in their Geneva Conventions, and within those rules it is by far the most strictly enforced, and the one with the most dire of consequences for those who engage in it. The only reaction from humanity was the change of name for that singular broadcasting name. The ship renamed itself to the apt, the gloves are off. The other ships did not even move to avoid collisions with the incoming asteroids and simply let them collide with their hulls and not leave a single mark. The gloves are off shot through every defense in my system, ignoring them with ease and stopped in the exact center of my system if you went by the orbits rather than the star. It fired only one weapon to a terrible yet total effect. That weapon broke reality within our system, and while I am not sure if every member of my species saw the same thing, but it is what I saw when that weapon fired. The world went dark, not even dark. It was as if existence simply ceased, and was replaced by an infinite expanse of shattered mirrors. I saw alternate paths I could have taken, and even those of my ancestors. I saw glimpses of myself greeting humans with open arms. I saw us fighting together against the common foe. I saw my people without the trappings of civilization, having never developed past crude stone tools. An entire different race, overtaking ours and being the dominant life form, and I even saw what my world had looked like, if that crucial spark of life never took off. Grack and his crew shared horrified glances at each other, terrified at what they had seen so far as the recording continued unstopped. While I was experiencing the possibilities of distant futures, pasts and presents, the humans took advantage of the stopped time and simply abducted every single remaining member of my race and froze them leaving me the single living member of my race at their mercy after taking their time to carefully prepare my punishment. They reduced every structure on the planet to dust with their weapons, save a small area around a former capital building, leaving nothing left. I don't know how, but they either removed my homeworld from the system and flung it into the void, or eradicated the system by the planet. I suppose... It doesn't matter now what they did, and I will never know.
I woke up in this habitation room, you see. I was recording and blinked what felt like spun glass out of my eyes when I saw my first human in front of me. They looked at me not with fear at my predatory appearance, fury at what I'd set in motion, or even glee of gloating. No, they stared at me with complete apathy as they told me to sit. This was how I was informed of my purpose and the fate of my people. I was told that my people were preserved in the future rather than being eradicated as I would have ordered in their place. I was told that some of my planets had unfrozen members, but they had carefully dropped chemical weapons that rather than destroy life, simply dissolving anything artificially made object and setting those planets to the Stone Age. I was told that depending on how those planets fared, then the rest of the population would be seeded on other empty planets to develop naturally as well. Removed from the influences of our current history, culture, and my destroyed regimency, it was truthfully a relief that my people had not been wiped from existence and simply made not a threat and left relatively unharmed by the humans. There was a kindness that I would not have shown or ordered. I was then informed of why I had been left unfrozen or outrightly killed. I was to be the living scholar of my and the Empire's mistakes and record my findings so that future peoples would be able to study my mistakes and prevent the ire of humanity once more. I was left with the Consul, the full total of knowledge generated by this conflict, instructions on how to use this Consul, what to record and finally Nanites designed to artificially and forcefully extend my lifespan indefinitely. This was the first, and to my knowledge, only direct cruelty inflicted by humanity upon me. Not that I begrudged them for that, as they wanted to ensure that I had no choice but to learn from my mistakes in full. Learn why the actions taken, and to record a worthy warning for those who come after. Erblat looked like life was finally leaving the being. He already dealt scales turning ashen as he spoke to the camera, eyes clouding with cataracts. The humans ensured that only once the message they deemed acceptable had been recorded, then the nanites would cease their work. And as you may see, I have finished my work, so I can now, finally, rest. After living a thousand cycles surrounded by the remains of my world and the interstellar void. Noah clouded eyes focused for the last time on the camera as he began to slump forward on the chair uttering the final sentence and plea of the video. Please, I don't know who you are, or even if it was for nothing, but if you have watched these messages sent into the dark, then please learn from my mistakes. And if humanity still exists, do not anger them. With his final plea uttered, all strength left Erblat's body, and his head began to fall forwards. Clouded wisps of life already having left his eyes before his head dropped to the desk, ending the recording and leaving his body in the exact same position as they found his desiccated corpse 8,000 cycles later. With a trembling voice, Grack ordered his helmsman to set course for the nearest communication relay to pass on the lesson and plea that he and his crew had witnessed. Summed succinctly up as, Don't feck with humanity! End of story 2036 story number one humans and fire written by eddie eddie all of humanity's history 
can be defined as a simple, single principle. Fire. From even before they were human, they had fire. It was part of their very being. In the primordial ooze of their home planet, their oldest primogenitors took an endosymbiont within themselves that harnessed that terrible process of destruction and made it a fuel. They used the same process that could be consumed all life on a planet as fuel. They would oxidize consumed matter to provide fuel for their body. Then they discovered the ability to make flame outside their body. All that they feared in the world was put in the flame. The monsters that hid in the dark were burned out. The shadows were chased away. And so humanity grew, and they turned the flame into a tool. They used it to process food before consuming it, to extract more fuel. They burned their food twice, once outside their body, and once again inside. They used it to refine metals to make weapons and tools. But always, rain was a weapon. Every primitive species uses sharp sticks as weapons. Humanity, they set those sticks on fire. For despite having it shackled within them and the fundamental part of their biochemistry, it could still harm them. Need to destroy something, set it ablaze. Don't bother tearing it down, just burn it away. If a human was wounded, they would expose the wound to flame to seal it. And still, they progressed. And the flame came with them. Weapons now propelled by the flame. They used lenses and mirrors to make the flame light entire swaths of the sea. Or to send messages between cities. And they wove this flame in their stories and legends. A gift from the gods, a purifying light, a weapon of the darkest forces. For them the flame was all things. The most beautiful and pure thing. A tool for the utter annihilation and the representation of evil. They knew, even in legend, that the star above them, their sun, was a flame. Stories such as Icarus, or legends of gods putting the flaming disk above them. They waged wars for lots of reasons, but often those reasons came down to who would burn, who had more to set in fire, or who had made more things processed by fire. They grew more became capable of making mighty machines. And how did they power these machines? Did they use light or water power, which they had been using for a long while, or even harness the wind? No, they chose to use fire again. They harnessed the ultimate force of destruction and confined it, directed it and fettered it to work for them more. For them, the answer to all things was simply, can we do it with fire? And it was only when that failed did they move on to other things. Often did we use too much or too little fire. They stripped resources from their home planet. Fuels created by millennia of geological process. And what did they do with it? They used fire to purify it. So that they could burn the fuels to make more fire for the machines that they built. They had discovered that there was power in the light, the wind and the water, but they still used fire. When it came time to leave their planet and reach for the stars, what did they do? Did they build a sleek gravity drive or a graceful solar sails? They didn't even build the most basic of magnetar engines. No, they used fire. 
They built mighty cylinders of flame-refined metals and filled them full of the explosive fuels they loved so and set them alight while sitting atop them. They chose to use fire and flame to hurl themselves into space. This was a far earlier than any other species had achieved spaceflight, as ungraceful as it was. Less than a decade later, they carried their flame to a satellite about their planet, their moon, as they called it. Yet, humanity has been reminded again and again that this is not a toy, but a force of nature. The raw manifestation of destruction. And what do they choose to do? Simply make better chains for the flames they so love. Humanity discovered that all these flames had polluted their planet and was slowly choking it. So did they choose to use wind or light to power their planet? No. They looked up to the sky and saw the sun. They used to call it the big ball of fire. Well, not correct. They decided it was close enough. So they harnessed that. They made small suns, small balls of fire that could draw energy from. They chose to harness another of the primordial forces, one that was as close to fire as they could get away with. And so they come now across the void to us. They come upon vessels powered by the flames of the stars, fire that they caught at the dawn of their existence and tamed and trained throughout all of their history. So, if it is one thing that humans bring with them, it is the flame, tied to them from the earliest of their ancestors, and now used to drive them across the void of space. End of story. Story number two. The Great Devourers, written by the British Tea Company. For the most part, space is quiet. A peaceful, endless void where twinkling stars in the distance are the only company for a billion miles. Here, a creature can easily lose himself in reflecting upon the vastness of the universe, or the grand design of what it is that propels existence forward. But right now, conundrums of philosophy would have to wait. Scientists were here, and they were solving problems, practical problems. For months, echoes had been heard from the edges of the galaxy. Enigmatic signals and communications had been picked up in foreign tongues and incomprehensible languages. As the months rolled by, the signals were getting louder. Sometimes, so loud the entire planets had their communications flooded by the signal. Countless voices speaking and a terrible cacophony that drove many poor souls to the brink, and many more to suicide. Something was out there, something scratching, screaming, running, and something was that many, so many. Yet as the volume increased, comprehensiveness did not. Words spoken in a chorus of chaos that no translator could decipher, no linguist could piece together. It was here. At this part of the first strong and clear signal of what it was out there could finally be received. The result had been a disappointment. All of the most advanced translators and intelligent linguists had failed to decipher this black speech and was plaguing communications for an entire arm of the galaxy. So terrible was the signal that trade in many regions sat down completely. Some planets were cut off from vital trade that would sustain populations. Entire civilizations fell into chaos by the signal that was driving the entire arm of the galaxy into madness.
and there was not even the worst to come. The day finally arrived when the invaders came. Across the void, the innumerable horde poured into the outer room. Black ships that blotted out entire systems descended upon world after world, littering them with obscene creatures that slaughtered populations and cannibalized world after world, sucking all resources away until there was nothing but a barren rock. It took mere months for an entire room worlds to fall. The invaders' sheer numbers was countless, their hunger unending. The rest of the galaxy would follow suit soon after. From the great archship Father Sol, Great Khan Hai Wang watched as the human hordes innumerable armada descended upon the hapless worlds below, rich with resources that would build new vessels, precious water that would fuel survival, and countless fleshy creatures and nutritious plants that would serve them as nourishment for the human people. A satisfied sigh breathed through him as he took a seat in his throne and smiled. The galaxy was a rich one, full of resources that would fuel the Great Horde's people for a millennia to come, long after they departed this galaxy in search of new feeding grounds. Humanity was growing. The countless billions of arcships and their populations would need the resources of this galaxy, and the ones after and their wandering of the void. Whether or not cosmic storms or hostile creatures resisted, the human horde would endure. They will grow and live off the fat of every world, suckling the gifts of the universe one after another with the grandness of human efficiency, no matter what stood in their way. It was here that the human race will feast again, like the last galaxy and the one before that. End of story. 2037. Genetic Modification, written by Hope Data Adam. The workplace is a crude, unsanitized, and extremely disorganized. As I walk down the hallways, following the group of galactic scientists and researchers, I see exposed wires, loose panels, and peeking into the rooms with open doors. Such sights were horrifying to me. Each breath I took, I nearly choked on whatever chemical is in the air, getting to the point that it was hard to breathe. While the undivinely annoying sounds of industrial worry, clanking and hammering, filled my hearing apparatus. Don't the humans know one thing or two about cleanliness, aesthetics, and completion? This whole facility is a health hazard, a disaster waiting to happen, and every work done here will lead to someone's death. But the exposed piping and wires, the creaking and incomplete floor panels, it's horrendously obvious they construct this facility in haste or perhaps do not have enough funds to afford such luxuries. If humans do not have the funds to completely check the list of workplace safety and satisfy the eyes of a design officer, then they cannot be considered as a race with unlimited financial and economical growth. Truly abominable of how they treat not only their equipment and shelter, but also their precious scientists who work in such conditions. Their minds are brilliant. I have seen some of their work. From space travel to space management to waste disposal, they bring so many new ideas onto the field of science of the galaxy. It's just a shame they do not work in good conditions, and I fear that it affects their most brilliant minds and thinking. I feel extreme pity as of now, and want to just abduct their scientists and have them work in our facilities. We would give them the necessary tools, the necessary materials, and most of all the necessary healthy work environment that they need. So many distractions, so many disruptions, 
I cannot even hear myself think right this moment. I refocus my attention on my colleagues up ahead of me, and I look closely at their heads and faces, even their bodies. I try looking for a hint of the same dissatisfaction within them, trying to see if they share my views and try to justify my observation reforms. I curl my lips up in satisfaction to see that all of them, through twitches of their limbs, squinted eyes, and occasional retching from their tracheas, they too think the same. The human guides are in front of the group, guided down the winding hallways to some distant destination. This vicinity truly feels like a maze, sharp turning corners, frequent deviations in path. It's all chaotic. He's now surprised the humans find a way to get through this mess, but he doesn't doubt that they all hold some navigation device in their person. Now, looking past the crowd of fellow researchers, I look at the Xenos, the humans, my beetle, two arms, and most of all, rather short. This is due to the gravity of their home planet, the planet they evolved in. The heavy gravity naturally pulled down on the humans, stunting their ability to grow past seven feet tall. But I'm now thinking back to the background report on the humans. They pierced through their planet's atmosphere over 157 sol-sun cycles ago, landed on their natural moon 145 sol-sun cycles ago, and developed a unique faster-than-light travel method 50 sol-cycles ago. In their calendar, it is now currently the year 2114, and calculating these aeronautical and space travel feats, their time frame is absolutely phenomenal. However, the methods they used to achieve these achievements were crude and brutal. They were not using refined techniques, and instead put their pioneers in metal tubes and blasted them into the air with chemical reactions of oxygen and hydrogen, practically strapped onto a massive explosive tank aimed to get as high as possible and push through the atmosphere. But they did it. I have to admit, their recklessness got them to what they are today. Hastiness and trying to win over competition are within their veins, and most often than not, they prevail. But still, I could not excuse the absolutely abominable environment their brightest minds are working in. Such barbarism and inelegance displayed by a spacefaring species might as well classify them as non-sapient. Delizets, are you still with us? I hear the synthesized, imperfectly replication of the human's tone and voice boom in my hearing apparatus. The translation device needs more work, but as I open my three eyes, I see that I have fallen behind the group and the human was checking in on me. I was quite embarrassed. My display of arrogance to the task at hand was shameful as a member of the knowledge community. I first catch up with the group who are waiting for me, and when I still hadn't given an answer, they stay still and quiet. I open my mouth to speak, but the air I breathed in caused me to heave. My exhale brings some relief but the chemical-filled air is still tightly coiled around my lungs. Yes, yes, I'm with you, Dr. James, just, and, and please just address me by my full title. The human smiles nonchalantly and nods at my request. Very well, High Scientist Council Member Legionaris Darzek Molexex. My apologies for wrongly addressing you. A force of habit, you see. The human then pushes up his reading glasses and turns to continue to guide the mob of researchers and scientists. The other human scientists, his name was uh, Dimitri, I could not remember, must have witnessed my act of choking on the air, and reassured me of the time of the arrival of their destination. Do not worry, we will be there soon enough. You just have to endure it for a little bit longer. 
His voice was deep, and somehow he could not shake the feeling that his tone and the way he said those words were meant to mock me. But I calmed and steeled myself. I am a High Scientist Council member Legionaris. I will not be provoked by such pitiful attempts at insulting me. I only squinted my eyes and continued to follow along with the group. Besides, if they do mock me too far, their feeble bodies will be brushed by my jerkamb. Finally, they came upon a hydronic reinforced door, guarded by two human soldiers wearing their standard uniform and equipment. In what they lacked in their biological bodies, they made up by their mechanical alterations. If a human loses a limb, they would replace it with a pneumatic one. If they cracked a section of their endoskeleton, they would replace it with a metal pole. If they broke their joints, they could replace it with a ball joint. It is quite a marvel of engineering, a human endurance, to not only go through the process of replacing one's body parts with an artificial one, but also the long journey of adapting to the changes that have been done. Many of my race have tried artificial transplants before in history. However, once they've deemed the transplant stable and the patient was discharged, they would die of shock and immune rejection the next day. They're all right, the human scientist James said to the soldier to the right, confirming something with them. He then turned around along with Dimitri and faced the crowd of waiting, bored and exhausted scientists. First, I would like to thank you all for coming here, and most of all, enduring the journey through our bare-bones facility. Even the human himself admits that the facility is extremely incomplete. Human James holds up his hand in one of his fingers, raising his chin and acting confidently. But we promise the next time you visit here, it will be finished. Human James lowered his arm and finger, clasping them behind his back. But today's focus is not on the facility, but what houses it. Ladies, gentlemen, Defer and Pinoya, today you will witness one of humanity's greatest achievements in science. We appreciate your patience, and we apologize for keeping you this secretive until now. We think the surprise and shock will be worth all of your effort coming here. So that's the reason why I was not briefed as to the reason for this invitation. It is a surprise. The only thing I was surprised by the human invention was the FTL Lagrange drive. So I'll be the judge of this one. The huge blast doors begin to whir and creak, and the red bulb above it begins to flash in red, signifying their entrance. Human James turned his body, but not his head, still focused on the group. Better strap yourselves in. This will be a woozy. Ignoring the human strange description, the crowd of scientists, including myself, walk past the secure blastos, and once I've stepped through, the environment completely changed. The room was sleek and complete, with no open wires, no anything. It feels like a lounge in a castellaring station, with the temperature and air cool, and the scenery beautiful. Adorned with vases of various ponds, and spacious room is colored golden with the light blue elements in the corners. The blastos beep and it begins closing with the same familiar whirring. My peers are also amazed by their change of scenery, but ultimately takes a seat at the arranged armchairs in the room. The blast doors closes, and that's when I could feel the change in the air quality. The air in the room is absolutely phenomenal. Within an instant, my lungs were purged of the impurities of the incomplete facility outside, and I let out a brief sigh of relief, just like my peers. After enjoying a newfound peace for a few seconds, I sit down in one of the many armchairs. That's when I noticed the reinforced glass was in fact not a mirror, as its mirroring effects is lifted, and it gives a view of the scene beyond. 
a room of human scientists, with panels and dials that looked ancient, made from crude steel and polymers. But it is highly important in each of their individual roles. I witnessed human scientists James and Dimitri leave their observation room from a cleverly blended indoor on the side and join their colleagues within the operating room. The little speakers within the room then make an audible blow of air, and it is from scientist Dimitri that has taken over the intercom system. <coughs> he clears his throat and indication that he is about to speak. Thank you once again for the time and attention, Xenos. Dimitri crudely addresses the group of highly praised scientists. Complaints were thrown and whines echoed, but the silence themselves a moment later. As of today, you will be the first species of the galactic community to witness this historic event. I am obliged to tell you that this whole event was recorded for archival reasons. Please do not be alarmed. Several of the more warlike and paranoid species looked up at the corners of the observation room, trying to see the hidden recording cameras, but they came up empty-handed. None of your reactions or evidence of witnessing this event will be released to the public without your consent, and that means from all of you. That relieves me somewhat. A verbal agreement is far from a written and signed contract, but it's a solid evidence that I can use in court if I have to sue the humans. I tightened one of my ornamental shoulder balls, it being a listening device. But if you do try to pull any legal shit on us, we have the evidence that we legally can use for our case. A moment later, human scientist Dimitri was removed off the intercom system within the operating room, and the sound of human scientist James comes on. My deepest apologies for my colleague's rude words. But he is right. Do not be alarmed. The recordings are only for archival reasons, and uh, not blackmail. The much more reasonable and sober-sounding human ensured the group. The lights in the observation room were slightly dimmed. The psychological technique to focus the group's attention on the operating room it is now time to begin the procedure. This is not an experiment, nor is it a newly made technology. This has been in the making for the past decade, and we are proud to finally reveal it to the rest of the galaxy. The group and I witness a coffin-like structure be raised at an angle in the middle of the operating room. Human scientist Dimitri and his colleagues working away on dials, valves, levers, and buttons, while James is being charismatic. All of you esteemed members of the scientific community will be witnessing the final product of those ten years of effort. Sweat and blood have been poured into this project for the betterment of not only human race, but the galaxy. Okay, now this is starting to wind on and on. I am now impatient to hear what it is that they are doing and trying to show us. This whole formalities thing that I've never been fond of, however being a scientist, means that I am not free from the shackles of bureaucracy and diplomacy. But... I wait patiently, as in the operating room a small, scrawny, sick-looking human enters the room with the help of two scientists. Today, we'll be witnessing the first artificial biological improvement on a human body. Impossible. Everyone within the observation room looked in interest, but most of all, surprise. This is a surprise for sure, and now I am intrigued to see how this will play out. One of my colleagues to my left have and hands trembling as they looked on at them with shock. Impossible. No way. I have tried it in all 23 sun cycles of my career to artificially improve our biological makeup, to improve the lives of the born sick, to save my kin. His voice trembled with both sadness and envy. 23 sun cycles. That's equivalent to 56 soul sun cycles. Where have you been, humans? I lowered my gaze from my colleague to return to the procedure. 
I could not listen to his desperate ramblings. But what he did say is true. He tried for 56 soul sun cycles to do what the humans achieved in 10. Where have the humans been all this time if they were able to do such scientific marvels like this? I let out a solemn sigh and pushed away the emotions that had settled within my heart. I want to see this procedure, if it succeeds, when the humans have done what countless scientists and galactic community tried to do for centuries. If it fails, then it is yet another failure to be added to the annals of history. Here we have Anthony Young. He is 13 soul sun cycles old, and he has been suffering from Down syndrome since birth. I take a closer look at the child's face, and it has a distinct look on it, one that appears different from regular humans. Down syndrome causes a distinct facial appearance, intellectual disability, and development delays. At age 11 sun cycles, he was struck by an automobile, fracturing his spine and losing his ability to walk. I once again looked around the operating room to see any piece of physical evidence to support this claim, and to the right corner, there is a wheelchair with a bouquet of flowers laid on it. How tragic, so young, to not only be born with a disorder that delays his development, but also struck by a disaster that leaves him paralyzed. The doctor within me feels heavy sympathy for the child, and I looked away for a moment, closing my eyes, to catch myself from slipping away into an emotional trance. Once I open my eyes again, Anthony is being helped into the now open coffin-like structure, now with some structure, and laid like a bed. Anthony comfortably lays in the cushion. We have full consent from his parents to conduct this assured procedure, and he himself has expressed the wish to be able to walk again. But the ability to walk can be regained by Anthony through exercise and training. It would take years, if not decades. This procedure will shorten that process into a few minutes. Anthony is then strapped into the machine. Not too tight, it seems, and he appears to be comfortable. Two human scientists take several vials of purple, alkaline-looking liquids from vial holder and slip it into the slots in the machine. And then they inject Anthony with something, and then another injection with both needles. Around a minute later, Anthony falls asleep. It must be anesthesia and propofol that the scientists have given Anthony. They are common human drugs to inhibit their pain receptors and slow pain activity to a point of sleep. This way, the surgeons can operate on the patient without inflicting any harm and without the patient intruding on their operation. Anthony is now placed within the officially named Hebe machine. Once he is encased, the vials on the saw inserted into the machine will have their fluids be injected into Anthony's bloodstream. Do not worry, this procedure is safe for his age. During human scientist James's work, the coffin encased itself and is lifted up on an angle again. We will now begin the procedure. I could not sit still in my seat. I want to take a closer look, see what is happening to Anthony, and see the human scientists at work closely in their respective stations. But now, I'm stuck in the seat, within an observation room. All of a sudden, an almost pulsing light begins to emanate from the coffin. The small piece of reinforced glass and the head of the coffin gives a much clearer view of this pulse. And, like a human heart doing a tasking job, it pulses faster and harder. The light becomes brighter and brighter, and the pulsing becomes faster. The tension is extremely high. What is happening? What are these pulses? Why are they happening? What purpose do they serve in this procedure? So many questions that I cannot get answers to right away. But everyone in the group watches with intrigued, peaked eyes with the procedure.
I'm at the edge of my seat, my hands holding on the armrest of the armchair, the anticipation within me growing, the excitement climbing. And then, like a shutting off of a fusion engine, the pulsing of the light fade away, and there is only silence. Dimitri, everyone can hear the human scientist James ask his colleague, perhaps concerned, perhaps ordering him. He can't be sure, because a moment later, the coffin that had made so much fuss opens with a hiss. It unfolds and reveals someone unrecognizable. Anthony's height has increased, his muscle mass larger, and most of all, his appearance appears to be like a healthy human. Each of my colleagues' breaths was taken away, including mine. My only appear that had vented their emotions to me broke into tears. Such technology. This is massive. Absolutely massive. Anthony woke up in his new state, and he too was amazed at by his change. The scientists help the new Anthony get out of the Hebe machine and stands up. First, the scientists were hesitant to let him go, since they knew Anthony had fractured his spine and can't walk. But Anthony clearly tells them to let him go, and he stands so tall. He breathes a sigh of amazement, of shock, of surprise. He looks towards the scientists that are all around him and begins thanking them all. And the human scientist's crew breaks into cheers and clapping. I and my peers can't help but do the same. The demonstration ended an hour afterward. I got to watch Anthony meet his mother and father, and they were enthralled by his new condition. I still could not fathom how this could be, but I have to accept it. I see human scientist James, and I immediately approach him with haste. Taking a deep breath to replace my exasperated excels earlier, I try to stand tall, stoic, and respectful on human scientist James. But I just can't. He and his team's work here is incredible. And I want to know everything about this project. I, uh, Dr. James Gun... James replies with a warm smile, nodding. Hi, Scientist Council member, Legionnaire Starzak Maldeskex. What is it? I chuckled. Even after his word-changing achievement, he still respects my wish of addressing me by my full title. Please, call me Dr. Lesigans. And it gained a similar chuckle from James, with him nodding in confirmation. Dr. James... What you've done here is incredible. Please, I need to know whether this technology can be downsized to affect food, medicine. James appears smug, surprised, and most of all holding in a laugh. I look on in confusion at his expression, screaming at him to mentally say what he's hiding. Uh, <coughs> Dr. Lesick, sir, I know that you are not aware of this, but the technology my team and I demonstrated today was an upscaled version of something... Humans already had. What? Yeah, um, we've done genetic modifications for two centuries now. Before, we could only do it on small things such as fruits, mice, cattle, medicine, and more. Uh, we cannot do it directly to birth a human child. What the feck? End of story. 2038. Story number one. Bonk. Written by H.S. Kantik. Bonk. Anna Asha. High Priestess of the Eternal Light, Slayer of Gods, Champion of the Chosen, Bearer of the True Eye, Mother of the Shadow, the Unforgiving, could not fathom what had actually happened. Not only did the primitive being didn't immediately fall to its knees in front of her, like every inferior creature with a single speck of sense would do, but as she ordered her Chosen One's servants to seize it, so that she could add the strange creature to her collection. Its hand reached down towards the ground and seized a piece of wood that was lying on the ground. 
and smashed it in the head of her servants. They ceased to move. She tried to make sense of what she just witnessed. Of course, no portal had ever been made to this world. The Oracle had been pretty clear on how untapped the space would be. It would explain why the creature wasn't afraid of them. What didn't make sense was why it didn't crumble in awe in front of all the grace, all the beauty, all the might, and all the magic surrounding the Chosen One. Nothing was wearing a pelt for night's sake. While they were wearing cloth for woven dream, tailored by the tamed nightmares of the Umbral Valley themselves. Its features were so strange too. The ears were short and round, unlike the long and thin the Chosen Ones were gifted and the same could be said for the nose. But the jaw, like the shoulders, was wide and square. It definitely looked strong, but seemed oblivious to the magic emanating from her. After all, she had never met a primitive being that didn't either scream or freeze in panic. She was still under confusion when she noticed her first Zediot advance towards the primitive. Of course, while she still had many questions, and the best sourceful answers would be that sorry excuse of a sentient. It still deserved to die for what it did. No one could kill the Chosen One and expect to live to speak about it. She calmed her mind and her heart to enjoy what she knew was coming. Her first Zediot going into action was always a wonderful show. Death followed him in every step he took. As he unsheathed these blades, the twin fangs of the primal shade. Every moment he made was enveloped in a deadly grace that he'd engraved his body with. In the hundreds of years he spent in the monastery of the Seven Way. She almost felt sorry for the poor thing. While her first Zeliot could be so fast at killing that his victims were dead before being aware anything had happened. He could also do it very slowly, so that you had enough time to reconsider all the life choices that had led to that moment, and regret all of them in the process. The second option was reserved to those too stupid enough to stand in her path willingly. Yes, the poor thing would suffer an excruciating agony under the hand of the first Elliot who... Bonk. The second time in less than a minute, Asha found herself abashed by a situation that she could not grasp. This primitive, this creature, this thing, dared to stand against her, and took the most precious thing she had, the father of her two daughters, one of whom had already made two assassination attempts against her mother. She was so proud of her, her most faithful servant, the one who always was standing by her side. And it used a piece of wood. It wasn't even a weapon. It was a branch lying on the ground, a stick. Even the clubs the trolls used had a minimum work put into it. Confusion was immediately changed into pure rage. She removed the patch that was covering her left eye and pulled out the being of pure darkness that was nested in it. Nylal Vaf, the weapon which ascended to sentience after drinking the blood of two primal gods, it took the shape of a dagger and any usher used it to slit open the palm of her hand, quenching its thirst for blood and ensuring it would obey her. Yes, her first Zediot was the one of the best warriors ever born, but she was the High Priestess of the Eternal Night, the Mother of the Shadow, 
Nenshi would not hold back against that thing. As she gathered the power, her surrounding shadows all started to bend in her direction, and the light of the day started to dim in the whole area. Finally, she could see the face of the primitive showing concern while looking at her. Yes, you stupid animal. I am the closest thing to death itself you have ever encountered, and you made me mad. Oh, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to find everything you care for, and I will destroy it in front of you, everyone you love. I'll make them scream in a long, painful agony. A beautiful melody for me to enjoy. Well, you begged me to take your pitiful mortal life instead. Every dream you had, every hope you have, I will crush them. And even when you will be nothing but an empty shell, death will not come for you. You will be left as a warning, a reminder of what happened to those that go against me. I'm the usher, the slayer of gods, high priestess of the eternal... Bonk. End of story. Story number two. Galactic Buffet Etiquette. How Not to Worry. Beginning playback. Title screen. Galactic Buffet Etiquette. How Not to Worry. Title screen fades to a panning view of a herbivorous buffet-style food line before settling on a human wearing black-colored shirt and slacks and a gray apron and a paper hat. Hmm. Hmm. My oh my. Does that look tasty? Hello, I am William Smith. You may know me from such informational films such as Prey, Not Always Harmless, and Your Poison Isn't My Poison. There is one constant in our ever-expanding galaxy, that is that any and all species require nutrition. Well, there are a couple species that are able to acquire their sustenance via photosynthesis. The vast majority of us require something a bit more substantial. Video switches to show an assortment of dish sizes and everything from tiny plate with a few berries and a couple leaves to a massive bowl overflowing with various plant life. Some species only require just the minimum for their small statues and slow metabolisms for their individual meals. Others require a bit more with the some variety in their dishes. Some require only one meal a day and so they eat a decent amount. Yet there are others who require far more than the rest. Video switches back to the human walking along a separate food line. This one filled with animal products. Not all species are strictly herbivores. There are quite a few fellow omnivore species who, alongside with consuming plants, also subsist their diets with animal products. As this is considered a mild affront to some herbivorous species, it is quite common to have separate rooms for all different diets. Well, it is often isn't required, depending on the establishment. It is common courtesy for omnivores to go through the herbivores line first, before getting their full animal product and to consume it in the secondary dining area. Lastly, in a galaxy, there are two species of obligate carnivores. While they can benefit from eating some fruits and vegetables, their diet primarily consists of meat. This can vary between fully cooked to entirely raw meat product. While it isn't uncommon for the establishment such as this to serve meat, it most often must be requested by the customer as to not disturb others as they make their own way through their serving lines. So if you're craving some meat with your meal, don't be see it. Simply ask. 
So remember, if you see someone with too much or too little, fret not. It may be entirely common for them. If you keep this information in mind as you make your way through the buffet, you won't ruin someone's day. Please join me next time with Watch What You're Drinking. Scene fades to a rather colorful logo of an insectoid creature and a paper hat presenting a plate of multicolored leaves and berries with the words brought to you by Zyzo Eateries. You want food? We have it. Any questions? Before fading to black. End of story. 2039. Wow. Written by Weird Spectre. January 5th, 1977 CE. 21st day of the second month, day of harvest, 5182 AP. The Corian research vessel, Winds of Discovery, winked into existence behind the largest gas giant of candidate 25561-D star system. The candidate world in question, a temperate world whose native flora was hued green, held all the hallmarks of the first people relic world, massing at 5.972 times 10 to the power of 24 kilograms, with an atmosphere of 78.09% nitrogen and 20.95% oxygen, and the obvious artificial objects both orbiting the world itself, one clearly the first people tech, the others surprisingly much lower technology, and the high elliptical asteroid orbiting the planet's parent star, dubbed 25561D underscore A. It was a very firmly within the Izino archaeologist status for a first people world. I congratulated myself on another successful mission and climbed from the Exos chair, ambling down to the galley. Everyone but the captain knew it was I, Horse Nightseer, who did the real work around here, and it was a shame that no one else had the heart to tell her. The navigation officers were cheering their successful arrival, yes, I thought. Using a gas giant's mass shadow to hide their reversion to real space was a clever choice. I accepted a drink, and focused my mind on the task ahead. First would be the sample of the anomalous large quantity of radio traffic from the various orbital installations around Candidate 25561-D. From there, we'd wait for an opportunity to slip warp-capable probes into the planetary surface and scan for anything useful. Until the kinds of technology at work down there could be devised, it would be much too dangerous to send personnel missions, and even then any First People installations had to be explored by machines. The protocol had precedence. The main issue was slipping past the artificial objects, mainly 25561-D-A, because of all still unknown extent of First People technology. Still, this was hardly my first direct translation unavailable, Rodeo, at the time. I felt confident there was no surprises in store. January 7th, 1977, CE. 23rd day of the second month, 5182 AP. I'm telling you those satellites are beaming propaganda, Nails roared, standing and slamming two of her fists in the galley table. Those transmissions show signs of being live events. Ailes, you cannot ignore that. Before Ailes could respond, I shifted my tray of food so that it was supported by my vestigial limb and placed a hand on each scientist's shoulder, more firm than friendly. What in the hells have gotten into you two? It appeared the two of the most learned scientists in the exploratory corps could feel had found something remarkably interesting about the floor at their feet. What were you arguing about? These primitive satellites, Wall said quickly, 
They're broadcasting constantly, hundreds of languages, thousands, cultural achievements, press conferences. We sent out one of the warp drive equipped probes to pick up some older signals too. And during the last heliocentric cycle was what the broadcasters call the Olympix, in a place called Montreal. It showed gymnastics and shooting and cooperation of a kind of unrivaled in the civilized galaxy. Of course it did, because the world is broadcasting first people propaganda. It's the last light flung from a dying species. Else, you've read the archaeological text. How else would a species who claimed to tame the atom in 8,000 generations commemorate themselves? Ailes replied, voice barely more than growling. How do you explain the nuclear radiation our probes found from almost one hideous cycle ago, then? That sounds like a species with a nuclear arsenal testing their weapons. Nail snorted. You can't seriously be suggesting that not only did the first people survive the last 67 million years, about 66 or 67 million heliocycles of this world, but that their descendants, who would be so fatally stupid as to test an atomic weaponry on their home planet. Before I could discipline either of them, one of the junior sensor technicians entered hurriedly, visibly shaken, and made a direct course to her exo upon seeing me. The executive officer, the shrill-voiced young female said, snapping to attention. We, uh, we, we have a problem. The transmissions, uh, you best see it for yourself. There is no doubt, then, Ailes said, dumbstruck and slack-jawed as she stared at the monitor. These apes aren't just propaganda broadcasts. They're alive and, uh, it seems suicidally stupid. How many nuclear warheads? I asked, stunned. Conservative estimates of at least 40,000, probably closer to 60,000, the junior technician replied. Wow, I muttered, taken aback. That's more nukes than half our naval fleet. The room was silent. Then you're sure these broadcasts are live? Asked Ailes for the third time. The junior sensor tech ran her models and simulations again and nodded. We've got a very sensitive sensor array. What we are seeing wasn't broadcasted out, it's just signals that are leaking from the satellites. I corroborated some of the signals too. One of the long-range warp probes is on its way to the outer edge of one of the nearest star systems to hopefully confirm their claims about reaching the natural satellite orbiting their world under this A-Pool-O program. We have been able to confirm a few things. Long-range telescopes confirm that 10 kiloton detonation of atomic weapons around one-twelfth of a heliocycle ago by the Soviet subculture, for example. What was wrong with these apes? I asked myself. The sensor technician flashed some high-quality images of the apes and their competitions. A woman in pink clothing, surrounded by males wearing what I could only assume was formal clothing, commemorating the festival or ceremony. She must, I thought, be a head of state, or a monarch of some kind. This is what I was talking about earlier, Ball said. This Olympics. That woman is a queen. Sort of like an empress. But it's more of a ceremonial position, I think. Watch their sports. Watch! What followed was a completion of the best moments of the games. A man from the eastern part of the planet's Asian subcontinent performing a series of somersaults in mid-air and landing with perfect posture. Despite suffering from a broken knee, according to the doctors immediately after, he collapsed, screaming in agony at the end of dismount. 
Five of the Ahmerikans won the highest accolade of the events, a sword pendant made of gold, and overcoming opponents in fisticuffs while wearing oversized red mints. A man from one of the two Gurman E's won another gold pendant for succeeding in a sort of stylized sword fighting with what looked like a rapier made of foil. A young man set a new record in the hurdles event despite being new to the sport. The daughter of the monarch partook in the games too, riding a large cattle-brown cattle animal with four legs. A female one with the highest accolade in archery despite never having competed at the international level before. Uh, it isn't just me, is it? I asked. These, uh, what do they call themselves, sensor technician? Humans, Exo. These humans are utterly and completely insane, aren't they? Three of the four present nodded agreement, but Walls rested on his back leg and drew the front two up against his chest, surprisingly alike how these humans sat. With respect, Exo, I don't think they are. Look at the world they evolved on. A holographic image glittered into view. Candidate 25561-D, spinning on its axis as though it had decided to appear miniature and orbit the meeting's room's light fixture. Then the rotation stopped, and the image focused on the primary continent, the one which the humans called Africa, and started showing climatographic data and information on the relative scarcity of resources at the time these apes first evolved sentience. Africa! At the time of the human's development was hell. We would not have survived there, Exo. As it is, they only pulled through by viciously competing with rival hominid species, such as what they call the, uh... He consulted his handpad. Homo Neanderthalis. I think that's how they say it. Worse, they were spread to the winds, hunter-gatherers until very recently. In evolutionary terms, being spread across the unbelievably variable conditions of their world, then the eruption of a supervolcano thinning out their population, followed by one or two ice ages. They were taught the value of versatility. Your point? Nails asked, sounding genuinely interested rather than dismissive. We just watched a man with a broken leg perform gymnastics for no other reason than the glory of his nation. We watched two competitors in vastly different fields, both difficult to learn, excel, despite having spent just over one Helios cycle learning how to partake in them, against competition who in some cases have spent their whole lives training for it. They're adaptable, too, making up whole new tactics on the fly in their more physical sports, to counteract unexpected moves by an opponent. They are also stronger than any other species we know of, save the first people, and maybe the Loti. Ailes added, thinking. Don't be stupid. The Loti are an old wives' tale. As far as the first people, of course they're equal in strength. This matter was some kind of a re-evolution program, I suppose. The course of evolution on this world has been subtly shifted towards the first people-like outcome since the KT Impactor event on this planet, 67 million years ago. But you're right, the human strength, versatility, and intelligence could be a problem, said Walls. The junior technician spoke up. It's a problem that might very well, uh, solve itself, she said, then swallowed nervously at the looks she was getting. 
All I'm saying is, they might never learn of galactic life. They've got an armada's worth of nuclear weapons aimed at one another, possibly enough to wipe out their entire species, despite their higher-than-norm radiation resistance. And even if not, take a look at this. A loose timeline replaced the image of Africa, a timeline detailing the history of human society. They spent effectively 90% of their evolutionary history as hunter-gatherers so far, since before they were what they now call humans. Then all of a sudden, about 12,500 years ago, the coming of agriculture. What? Oz asked. I shared his surprise. My understanding of archaeology and ancient history had it that we spent 24,000 years on agriculture, and then a further eight centuries to reach the level of technology humans were at now. That it took them less than half the time to achieve the same was worrying. No, more than that. It terrified me. And still does. While there may have been a few novelty steam engines 2,000 years ago, it was 270 years ago that the first steam machine was used to draw water from flooded mines. And already they have an understanding of genetics, relativity, nuclear physics, chemistry, and their own psychology? I asked. Indeed. But for every advantage their exponential intelligence and versatile psychology gives them comes a corollary demerit. Our species may have been slow to develop the same industrial technologies they did, but we understood, once we started burning anthracite and other types of coal, that they would harm our atmosphere. Even if they don't glass themselves with those atomic weapons, they don't even know global warming is something to be concerned about yet. I suspect they'll probably wipe themselves out within, say, half of one of their centuries. The others nodded sagely, and I saw the problem with that. If neither nuclear warfare nor poisoning their biosphere kills them, though, they'll grow back stronger, no? Their versatility would immediately put them ahead of us, at least in understanding the effects of radioactive fallout or climate control. They realized this was true, too. My species has, to this day, used only three nuclear weapons on planets, and a total of twelve in our entire history. That's less than these humans tested in the five months we watched their world fall. And we can't take more proactive steps either. Even if that first people artifact weren't in the way, if even the single breeding colony of humans survived, then the entire galaxy would be at risk in a few tens of thousands of years at most. Humans hardened against an attempt at making them extinct, and probably angry as well. Hales looked disappointed to be saying it, which was interesting. A thick, heavy silence that rang deafeningly loud filled the room as we all considered the ramifications of the discovery. Extinguishing the human race entirely, the sort of act that they would call genocide, wouldn't be something that we'd do unless directly and willingly attacked by an existential threat, unable to be reasoned with. But even if it were an option, it might not be feasible. Just a single nuclear weapon could have slagged the winds of discovery if we'd been discovered. And even our most heavily armored warships wouldn't have fared much better. Calling for backup, should we have been found, wasn't an option. Suddenly, Wall said, I vote we help them. All eyes were on him. They clearly don't understand the cliff edge they are swiftly approaching. They could be a great ally on the galactic stage, especially against the Ashtai aggressors. And even if not, we'd be condemning them to almost certain death if we didn't at least try to help. It is not like that we're going to wipe them out, Ailes returned. No, if we don't save them from this, are we not complacent in another kind of species-wide cleansing? 
Whether that's due to our acts or lack thereof, what exactly would make us better than the Ashtai? The room had a comfortable atmosphere. I don't think any of us slept well that night. I certainly didn't. April 18th, 1977 CE. First day of the fourth month, 5182 AP. In the intervening months, we bore witness to humanity. We managed to warp two satellites into high-orbit installations, small enough and with minimal power requirements as to be undetectable. And one rainy night, we dropped an automated probe onto a large island just off the European continent to learn more about these remarkable people. The probe's ephemerals kept it aloft, cushions of force pressing against the ground, and from it sprung a complement of drones no larger than native insects. No doubt, some would be lost to birds, others to environmental hazards, but to all but the most directed examination, the machines appeared to be little more than pests. The flies infiltrated everything. Museums, religious sites, government buildings. For months, we watched. We tapped diplomatic cables, decrypted radio transmissions, watched TV, and raided more than a few libraries just trying to understand. Members of my crew became experts on Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, in Platonic dualism and Cartesian hyperbolic doubt, and Augustine's just war theory and his theodicy of problem of evil. The psychologists learned Freud's theories and historians poured over humanity's past, all to try and figure out just what exactly was wrong with these apes. The military historians in particular were enthralled, discussing the finer points of Sun Tzu's art of war, while those obsessed over politics of the world debated Machiavelli's views versus those of Chinookia. I think that must have been when the sleepless nights began. As a ship's executive officer, it was my duty to immerse myself in every account of mankind's warfare. But I must admit, I failed in this duty. In most cases, I could barely muster the courage to read my own subordinate synopsis of them. Some, though, I felt obliged to fully review. Caesar's victory in the Battle of Alicia was one such one. When faced with an impossible choice, that is, either attacking a numerical superior force, which has a high ground, or waiting for the enemy force to run out of supplies in their encampment despite knowing full well that his enemy had sent out messengers for aid, Caesar chose to invent a third option by walling in the Versingatorex then constructing walls to defend his position there, and in doing so, pulling out his foe's strategic advantage from under him. Not to mention, his ability to hold Gaelic cavalry and soldiers. This wasn't one Roman's skills, either. Don't even get me started on the Battle of Argoncourt. It was again the lateral thinking that filled my nightmares. What if the enemies discover our probes? I would ask myself. Can we destroy them before they are disabled, subsumed, and harvested for their technological wealth? We'd seen how smart these apes were, after all. Not only in their brazen and insane military tactics, large-scale and small, there were stories of man wielding a broadsword on the beaches of Normandy, facing down gunfire and allegedly scoring more than a few kills. But in their scientific potential. Only a few years before our arrival, a scientist diagnosed a decade previously with a fatal degenerative disease had not only outlived the time that he was expected to have lived, but also revolutionized his people's understanding of black holes and their evaporation. I've often woken in a cold sweat at the thought of some mistake, no matter how small, might have led to humanity knowing that travel faster than light is possible. If they ever learn of that great secret, I have no doubt 
that within five of their years, humanity will have by far exceeded us in all metrics but age. The arguments amongst the scientific contingent continued, one faction wanting nothing more than to flee, another fearing the galaxy better off without these damned apes, and a third thinking they needed saving from their own apparent stupidity. Myself, I agreed with the first faction. The humans, it seemed, were mad, and while I had no interest in seeing harm come to any sapient species, that didn't mean that I wanted to help, per se. But I chose not to make my position known, and instead wait out the storm for some months more. August 10th, 1977 CE. Fifth day of the six-month solstice of the sun, 5182 AP. I wish I could give this story a conclusive ending. Regale you with my heroics, or find for you some deep and meaningful truth about all life that we could have learned from the humans. Instead, here's the truth. Due to causes from both within and without, our situation aboard the Winds of Discovery became untenable. From within, it was a state of the violence. One of the exterminator factions damn near killed a scientist who supported the Messianic, a word we borrowed from humanity, faction and got herself a prestigious position of placement into the ship's recycler while still alive for it. A junior technician tried to sabotage our hyperspace drive, presumably to force our hand in contacting the apes. From without was the launch of what humans called the Voyager probes, which would soon interrogate the gas giant of candidate 25561-D star system, such as the one behind which we orbited. The winds of discovery would have been discovered, and with it, humanity would learn of extraterrestrial life long before I remained convinced they were ready for it. I wanted greatly to leave to enjoy the comforts of civilization and share half-drunken stories of the madness of the strange species we stumbled upon and the uncivilized wastes beyond the galaxy we knew and loved. But call me sentimental, if you wish, but I felt that humanity would never be safe so long as people knew of their location. I'd seen what the divisive species could do to a crew of starship that knew nothing of beauty by existing, and while that may in part have been due to our close contact with them, it was still a more than remote possibility that our kind might act either to destroy or save the apes. I stand by my order to destroy our navigational logs to this day. On that basis, humanity was too dangerous to be contacted, either with the unethical intent to destroy them, or with the, um, there is a word that they have for this. Naivety. That's what any decision to save them from themselves would have been. Five Earth hours later, the fly drones met up with their carrier probe, which detonated a tenth of a milligram of antimatter on board, releasing the energy of just under a half a ton of TNT. In the rainy moors of northwest England, of course, much of that energy was wasted as gamma rays and pions, but still, it solved the problem. The key technologies in the probe were destroyed, and all else, its carapace and external sensors and such, were all biodegradable. Not that I had any doubt that humanity won't still match the technology level that that probe represented, and exceed it within the millennium. That left us orbiting a gas giant. In five Earth days' time, we would vanish into hyperspace and never return to this place. So, you ask me what there is to learn from all of this, yes? Hmm... How to answer that succinctly? Humanity is complicated. What little time they had to spare between advancing technology at breakneck speed is absorbed in theoretical debate and moral argument. And the totality of what my species, the Koreans, produced throughout our age of enlightenment, several Earth centuries in length, it eclipsed by much of the thinking humanity did in half a century. 
That complexity is at once the cause and result of their survival and versatility against all odds. Their minds were mapped from early in their evolutionary development to handle abstract ideas. Be that what one sound is underground might mean compared to another, or what the failings and successes of various ethical views may be. What I learned was that humans are capable of things that we call fantasy. Be that landing in perfect piece of gymnastic work with a broken kneecap, or merely an act of living their lives while the nations they belong to point weapons of mass destruction at one another. And that they can be driven not only by teamwork or competition, but by both, often at the same time. I often wonder about the fate of that world, of course. I had more than enough files on that planet's history, culture, and philosophy to keep me occupied for the rest of my long, long lifespan. But still, it would be nice to have information after the day of August 15th, 1977. I hope simultaneously that they continue to thrive and that they were wiped out mercifully quickly. Because what I learned above all else is that humans are more than the galaxy is ready for. They're morally superior to us, smarter than us, and stronger than us as well. Their ideas are infectious, and I have no doubt that, had one of their finest military minds, such as Caesar or Alexander the Great, been shown the technology of modern space travel, either man would have revolutionized warfare and diplomacy irrevocably. I stick by my scores of broken protocols in this endeavor. Of all the sapient races the winds of discovery happened across, no one was more deserving of the power to explore the stars than the daughters of the first people. And that is exactly why humanity could not be allowed it. The stars must be theirs to take, not be guided to, lest we cloud their fine minds and abstract views. Horse Nightseer, excerpt from Memoirs on Contact. August 15th, 1977. Late at night, a Corian starship fled from Sol System under the cover of slow warp, then reached its desired jumping-off point, disabled warp for a few tenths of a second, and vanished into hyperspace with naught but a radio signal, lasting 72 seconds to show for it. Approximately 36 minutes later, an astronomer's equipment recorded the signal value and the symbols 6EQUJ5, and soon, it became known for the astronomer's response. The WOW signal, never repeated since, was discovered. End of story. 2040. Story number one. Saber-toothed liquor, written by Son of Nobody. Akittle was admittedly not paying terribly close attention to the pair of children chasing each other in a circles around on the grass a few meters away from her. She had her communicator unit held in her main manipulator, her two central eyes focused on it and was composing a natal day message for her mother. The honoring of one's female parent was a long-held Kliskit tradition, though doing so specifically on natal days was something that she had picked up from humans. They were good occasions, though. They weren't tied to a specific belief tradition, so no offense could be given if a child or a parent had changed their belief tradition and one had to pick a day or two out of the year's turn somehow. A natal day was as good a day as any to pick. She input a few more lines, her antenna held down as she struggled to find appropriate phrasing. Her false secondary eyes fixed on the running children, but her attention definitely elsewhere. Her recently pupated offspring, Pathis, had been playing with Emily, the three-year-old human girl, for several months now without any major incidents. 
so Akatol had stopped being quite as watchful nervous when the pair were together. Besides, Emily's father Steve was right there, helping keep an eye on the two children. Really, there wasn't that much to be worried about. Humans were bizarre creatures, shockingly reckless, with extremely strange ways of finding enjoyment. But they weren't super Kliskian. They were mere mortals, and in some ways rather fragile. Their soft epidermis was astonishingly easy to damage, to begin with. Akadol remembered the first time she'd seen Emily skin her knee, as Steve had called it. It had been quite alarming. She'd been certain the child was savagely injured, but with internal fluid, a bright, shocking red even, leaking from the surface. But the girl had hardly seemed to mind. She'd gotten a brief swabbing with a sanitizing cloth that Steve had produced from a bag he carried over his shoulder at all times, and a small bandage that didn't even fully cover the leaking area placed over it, and then a kiss better on the injury from her father, after which she cheerfully raced off to play again as if nothing had happened. Kliskit were far more difficult to damage externally, though of course, if something did crack their exoskeletons, it could be catastrophic. Steve had nodded when told this, but then startlingly noted that most human children fractured their endoskeleton at some point in their development. He himself, he said, with something almost like pride, hadn't managed to break both arms at once in his youth. He'd also told her, with pleased interest, that scientists of his species were studying the Kliskit exoskeletons, seeking to artificially produce similar substance, as they were made of a material far stronger than the chitin found on superficially similar but much smaller animal species on their native world. So humans were actually, if anything, a bit more fragile than Kliskit which made their impulsive willingness to throw themselves into danger all the more remarkable. With a shake of her antenna, Akatol returned her attention to the missive on the small screen in front of her. Suddenly, a sharp sound, a kind of high-pitched yip with a trailing click, made all her eyes instantly snap to where the two children were playing. That hadn't been a pain sound or a danger call, but it was the sound of shocked surprise, the kind of sound that something happened just before a danger call, or, even worse, when something so fast and deadly had attacked there was little or no time for a danger call. With the rush of fear pheromones suddenly thick around her, Akatol sprang to all four feet, seeing Pfizer lying on the ground with Emily bent over in a positively predatory posture. What had the girl done? Steve waded into the situation before Akatol could decide if she should and he towed Emily off of the young Kliskit who, much to Akatol's relief, climbed to his feet and with a puzzled buzzing, seemingly unharmed. Steve, though, was once again scolding Emily, and after a brief telling off that Akatol couldn't quite hear, he gently took Pathis by the main manipulator limb and urged him towards Akatol. Emily, panting again, dragged her feet as she was also towed along. Pathis, amiable as always, just walked at Steve's side his antenna indicating only curiosity. As they got closer, Akatol heard Emily saying, Daddy, I was only playing saber-toothed tiger. It's okay. Confused, Akatol got to her feet, having alarming visions of an admittedly carnivorous human child deciding to inexplicably try to predate her own offspring. Steve, what happened? Steve sighed deeply and sighed. Emily licked him. Akatol blinked, her mind wrenching to a different track entirely. As far as I know, there are no compounds in the exoskeleton of Kliskids that are toxic to humans, and Pathis is generally cleanly. Steve chuckled and shook his head in negation. Oh, oh no, I'm not worried about her. She licks all kinds of things, most of them much dirtier than your son. 
No worries there, just, uh, well... He gave Emily a complex look, and the child looked down Dada's shoes, seeming chastised by it. She does lick all kinds of things, so I have no idea what else she might have licked today. And human mouths are dirty places to begin with. Akital angled her antennae to indicate confusion. I do not think any diseases are transmittable between our species. No, but bacteria can grow anywhere. I know it probably wouldn't do him any harm, what with the handy exoskeleton he has. But I don't want him getting some kind of bacterial joint rot or something. And like I said, I have no idea what else you might have licked recently. Oh, Agdal found herself suddenly at a loss. Bacterial joint rot was actually a thing that could happen, especially if one had been engaged in activities that might leave microabrasions around the joints. Like, say, being chased and pounced on by a human child. But now she was very much at a loss about what to do next. Taking Pithis to a doctor just for getting licked by a little girl seemed absurd. Steve apparently correctly interpreted her baffled set of actal antennae. Because he began rummaging around his bag while saying, nah, It's fine. I think I know what to do. Just, um, how Arkless get with the application of alcohols? Uh, like externally, not internally. Akital found herself flicking her antenna upwards in something close to laughter, contemplating the complete and total insanity of the phrase externally and not internally with regards to alcohols, and said, It'll do him no harm applied externally. I'll just sanitize the lick then, and all's well. Steve bared his teeth in a gesture Akital recognized as meant to reassure and set about opening a little packet with a sanitary wipe in it. Thank you said Akital, sitting back down on the bench and pondering how in the galaxy a species that spent its development years licking everything even survived. Once again, she found herself thinking that humans were very strange indeed. End of story. Story number two, Unexpected Help, written by Z of Swear. Our species has always been proud of our aerial capabilities. We are born with wings and learn at an early age how to use them. But there is a period when our younglings have just hatched, but still haven't learned to master flight, when they are vulnerable. This is usually the time when the serpent people, our sworn enemy, make their attacks. Apparently, they find our younglings' flesh a delicacy. Disgusting creatures they are. One day when I came home from food gathering trip, I found our oldest child outside our home, on the ground. Out in the open, exposed, and in the distance I could see that one of the serpent people was heading our way. Our youngling was too heavy for us to lift, but wasn't strong enough to be able to take flight by himself. We felt panic slowly rising. Now, you must understand that we are a fairly primitive species. We are aware of others who are more technologically advanced and have a lot more knowledge than we are capable of. These species are usually not very interested in us, but random exceptions have been known to occur. Therefore, we were very surprised and very happy when a four-legged creature came walking in on its hind legs as they usually do, with a curious expression on its face. We assumed our panic-stricken chatting had caught its attention, and when it saw our youngling on the ground, the alien carefully went down on all fours, cupped the front feet, weird, I know gently around our son and slowly lifted him up to our nest. We thanked the creature with all our hearts. We realized that we don't understand our language, but we hoped body language and sincerity would do the translation for us. I'm not sure I'd understood. It bared its teeth in a threatening manner, 
But on the other hand, it went back on its hind legs and walked away. So maybe we misinterpreted the assumed threat display. We are, after all, talking about an alien and technologically advanced species. Anyways, we're glad that our paths crossed when best needed their help. End of story. 2041 The Lonely Cosplayer, written by Lane Meller. Carlos was fidgeting as he perched on the edge of a rough corvalet of his small bed, tracing one edge of the 80s-tastic geometric designs that it featured. His new boots were digging into his lower claws, and the fabric he'd picked was itchy wherever his sweat touched it. So basically, all of the places he wanted to itch in public, at least. Fecking cosplay. Why did he do this to himself again? He finger-combed his hair back, grateful that his new cut would mitigate most of the halberd hair he used would otherwise suffer. Plus, it matched the character. The things he did to look authentic, but still, he did look good. He gathered up his bag, then snagged his convention pass, making it sure that it was clipped neatly to the pauldron on his shoulder. Last time, he had been hassled by security for trying to sneak in, as if he'd spent all this money and effort on a costume only to not drop a bit more for tickets. As if a grown man dressed as a stormtrooper wasn't the main demographic of that particular convention. He grumbled a bit, adjusted his van braces for all the seventeenth time as they slipped again and made his way out of the hotel room. He was with his people again. It was amazing to be home. He spent many hours taking photos with others, hit up a couple panels, and spent far too much money in the artist's gallery. It was pure paradise, worth the itching and the occasional accidental bump into another. Seriously, with this visibility you could see why there were all such terrible shots. But the happiness of others delighting over his outfit one he'd spent far too many hours crafting, was immense in its effect on him in return. He could take pride in this and actually have someone understand. The ebb and flow of what felt like a thousands of people carried him away. He meandered through the rest of the con, weaving his way through the streams of geeks there to celebrate their love for comics and pop culture in general. Far too soon, all the booths were closing up. Glossy illustrations and plushies alike were being shoved in boxes till the next morning and several groups looking to hang out after the party had started to gather, some to go out and some to stay in in one of the many rooms that had been rendered. Carlos carefully deposited his helmet and van braces, which were easy to lose while drunk, and the loot that he'd acquired into his bed and then went looking for his own fun. An unknown amount of time later, he came to on a rough surface. Cement, maybe? It was hard to tell in his current condition. His eyes were crusted shut, and his mouth tasted like roadkill had curled up inside before expiring. He held a gag and rolled over, which started a pounding of drums to the inside of his skull. Tump to tump to tump. Each beat of his heart sent another throb into his temple. How much had he imbibed last night? Because normally it didn't feel like elephants were dancing on his spine after a night out. Just dehydrated and a bit queasy. But this was a new level. He gagged again and then carefully wiped his face, staying on the side to try and stop Jackhammer in his skull. But even just his arms moving was enough when Carlos couldn't help but puke. Well, at least he rolled over first. He thought helplessly as foul liquid spewed next to him. That, at least, seemed to settle his nausea, though it did nothing for the headache. 
and the smell next to him would probably turn his stomach again soon if he didn't move away. With what felt like a Herculean effort, he rolled to his other side and a few inches away from the gross pull that he created. He used the edge of one sleeve to carefully wipe his lips and then the hand of the other to clear out his eyes a bit. Where was he? The world around him slowly became more visible, although it was dark enough that he couldn't discern that much. Probably a blessing considering how his poor brain already felt, but it didn't make him feel more difficult to tell if he actually knew where he was. Perhaps somewhere in the convention center or one of the hotels. His eyes slowly adjusted to the dusk levels of lighting. The ground was too rough and too sparse to be one of the rooms. He also would have expected someone would have moved him to a bed at least if he'd passed out there. Finally, his mind seemed to stop throbbing as badly and he was able to sit up with only a grimace. He'd sell his soul for a bottle of water in that moment, but he'd probably have to at least walk back to his own room before he could get that awful taste out of his mouth. There was another cosplayer sprawled nearby. He noted somewhat absently. Armor made from boxes, it looked like. Cleverly painted and distressed, too. He would have to extend his compliments. That was always the hardest part to him, making a new thing look old. Must have been a hell of a party. He scooched himself to the wall, wincing as he heard his plastic shawls scraping along the floor. He really didn't want to repaint those. After more than a few moments resting against the wall, he managed to stumble upwards, onto unsteady toes. First order of business was to check on the other guy. He had not moved at all, but it was so hard to tell anything at all outside of the crates that were strapped to his body. He grabbed one's shoulder and shook it gently. Please, don't be dead. Don't be dead. Don't be dead. He chanted to himself urgently as he kept slowly trying to wake the other man. A pained groan was met with a near shout of relief from the stormtrooper. Although it was cut forth from Carlos was reminded how much his head still ached. Hey buddy, can you hear me? Are you hurt anywhere? Or, or just really hung over? Should I take off your helmet? He blabbered out questions one off the other. No one wants to puke in their bucket. Yaksa Fragbeglia, Sporen Quildo Veld. A strange gibberish emerged from the general direction of the helmet that he was examining. Dude! I don't know what your fandom is, let alone whatever language that comes with it. You can be out of character, he says in irritation. He did not need this right now, and he reached for the helmet. He was met with a weak attempt to block him, but he batted arms away easily, definitely hung over then. He caught the latches, and the other cosplayer went practically feral, now screaming in the same gibberish as before. Carlos let him drop, wrestling this weirdo was obviously a waste of his time. He ran one hand through his freshly shorn fuzz on his fair, and he scowled down. Fine! Keep your stupid helmet on. I'm getting out of here then, he snarled back, turning around quickly, almost losing his balance in the process. His stomach dropped in protest, but he pushed forward gamely. The long haul was completely unfamiliar to his eyes. Well, crap. He tested his phone. No service. He needed to get outside before his GPS kicked in. Soon, he found a large door on the far side, which he pried open. It was heavy, but manageable. The man in the armor was staring at him as he did so. Disconcerting, but still also manageable. Carlos finally cracked it enough to slip through, and watched with alarm as the armor guy started shambling in his direction. Great! Just what he needed right now, a tag-along of dubious quality. He pressed forward quickly, pulling his cell from the hidden pocket of his hip once more. No bars, of course. 
He scowled, which made his headache flare up again from his tightened skin around his forehead. He was getting too old for the drunken binges. Possibly. Maybe. He just would not be telling his spouse about this when he made it home tomorrow. Ugh. He was already going to catch crap for the scrapes to his lower armor. Dal was not above petty mocking when he'd done something stupid. Quazazum qual quark. The boxy man behind him was speaking in gibberish again. I'm small wheel, sickly. Stop following me. I already have a hangover. I don't need this. What I need is an entire jug of orange juice and possibly an entire bottle of ibuprofen. And some eggs or something. He snarked back, trying to urge his legs to move faster so he could ditch the other cosplayer. And maybe a new brain, too. He was just rounding the first corner and passed another oddly squat door when he paused. Confusion. Something was not correct, because it did not compute. That was a window, which should show him the outside. That was not what outside looked like for a normal hotel, or anywhere on earth, really. He scurried to the long stretch of transparent wall, one hand pressed against the cold surface. Unlike glass or plastic, it seemed to hold the chill like a rock crystal did. Outside floated an orb, a massive, swirling, glowing planet. Specks of green overwhelmed by blue and turquoise and splashes of white and grey that reminded him vividly of pictures of clouds from space. But the continents were all wrong, not to mention the black ring that also seemed to loop the whole thing like some sort of cosmic necklace. He didn't know how long he stayed frozen, both in mind and body. As he watched the spaceships, spaceships, his mind screeched dock in and away from the rotating platform that consumed part of the globe. Something brushed his shoulder. Then one long rectangular finger poked him in the ribs. He spun around, face pale, as he glared again at the... Well, was he actually a cosplayer? Because this was space. Oh my god, are you an alien or waiter? Am I the alien? Carlos pondered for a moment before the creature jabbed him again. Qual er zoom lakba. The thing yelled again. I don't understand you. He screeched back and then muttered, Why am I fecking bothering? Can't understand me anyway. He stopped the third jab in the tender part of his upper rope cage in between the plates of his plastic breastplate. He wouldn't generally consider himself a violent man, but he would not stand for such blatant disrespect for his person. He grabbed one boxy arm and pushed. The thing crumpled like a house of cards. Well, that was not exactly the fight that he'd been expecting. Oh God, oh shit, he breathed out as the universe seemed to pause around him in his panic. Carlos rushed forward, putting the same squarish arm towards him, only for it to pop off. He'd killed him and dismembered him. But underneath was more armor. This was a turquoise blue, with bits of shiny chrome infused, like pinstriping along the sides. Calloused hands traced the line of the metal arm. This was super cool looking. Why was Box Guy hiding this? He reached for the latch on the side of his helmet. They revealed another helmet. What sort of crazy Scooby-Doo level shenanigans was this? He felt around for another latch but couldn't find one and gave up, leaving the cosplay, alien, robot, thing on the ground. He decided to keep going, leaving the strange metal being behind him. Carlos felt guilty, but what else was he supposed to do? Carry around a guy with two sets of armor who couldn't speak English who was actively poking you? Not happening. He kept walking, trying to keep his footsteps quiet, but the plastic bits of his fake shoe caps, as well as the bits of plastic scraping against each other, did not lend itself to stealth. 
It physically hurt to do, but he started to shed bits of homemade costume, slashing them against one of the many long windows. He kept his front and back chest pieces secured, down to just the flight suit, his shoes and two large pieces of plastic armor. He did make a lot less noise, which eased the lump in his throat a bit at how much time and effort he just abandoned on the floor. But it wouldn't help him any if he was dead. Carlos came to another doorway, inset into the side of the sloping hallway he'd been making his way down for many long minutes. He couldn't even see the box guy anymore. He had to pry this one open as well, then metal shrill with its protest against such abuse as it let an unholy noise. All of the doors in whatever ship he was in were broken or something. He held his breath, waiting for someone to come investigate, but he heard nothing, so he slipped through. Inside reminded him vaguely of a server room that he'd seen while working IT in years past, although much more futuristic looking. More of the clear non-plastic showed twists and rubber and metal underneath his feet. He poked one of the screens. It came to life, spitting what looked like some kind of sort of code to him as he scrolled through. He kept poking, hoping that he wasn't dumping the fuel system or something. A few more minutes of investigation yielded nothing further. The language barrier was just too big, and the program too foreign to even try and fake his way through. He moved on, pushing into yet another door past the rows of wires, and away from the bank of windows set before, hopefully towards the belly of the ship. He had a lot of questions, and still no plausible way to get answers. This time the door parted easily, and he pushed it into yet another hall. This one was lined with even more doors, each one on separate color. Well, fortunate favors the bold. Carlos opened the first. This one was also a sticky door, and he had to peel it aside. He had to poke his head in. It was another box, guys. He backpedaled and went to the second door, and the third. By the tenth door, he had a small crowd of poorly dressed following after him. After twenty doors, he was sweating but determined, and the next new box guys weren't poking him in the ribs, although they did keep talking to him in their alien language, as if he could magically learn it. Carlos had finally run out of doors and patience. The box aliens did not seem to be fans of personal space at all, pressed up against him and then each other, with a strange, decordant language buzzing between them. They were still acting like ducklings when he made his way back to the hallways with windows, so he turned back and led them to the original boxman that he'd accidentally de-armed. Once they were clustered around the fallen companion, distracted, Carlos took off again. He passed a pile of white and orange armor he'd shed again, and then back to the room full of computers. He scurried past when he noticed several of the box aliens poking around. He was sick of them, following him everywhere, so best to keep going. He came to another door, and this one opened with his whisper of a touch. He took a few paces into the new room. High seating spread out across what looked like a living room. Oh, feck! More aliens, and they seemed even less friendly than the armor guys from earlier. An ear-splitting noise speared through his brain. The hairs in the back of his arms stood an end as the eerie screech of an alarm echoed through the halls and inside his skull. Then, almost as one, the trio of new aliens leveled gunshaped objects in Carlos's direction. They were remarkably human-looking, although the towering height and the three digits in each hand still made it immediately obvious that they were not. He dove forward and rolled, skidding against the burgundy carpet, narrowly missing a strange energy burst that came from the muzzles of the weapons. Purple slashes filled the edge of his vision as they fired again. He rolled again. The burns later were going to be epic. They fired a third time, no longer quite as in sync, but it didn't matter. He had been cornered. 
Each one smashes against his chest, scorching the plastic, throwing Carlos back in the long hall of the windows. He groaned, pushing himself up and threw himself back into the room and went one to one of the taller aliens. Something dripped into one eye as he swiped it away, eyes full of steel. Something or someone had brought him here, and he was betting these jerks with guns would know more, or he could at least get a weapon of his own. He landed on the first one, wrenching one wrist back with a snap, snatching the sleek grey laser gun into his other hand. Just like laser tag, right? He turned narrowly, missing another flash of energy pulse from another tall alien, and shot the third point blank. He dropped like a puppet whose strings had been stashed, and Carlos rolled again. This time, into the remaining enemy still standing. He went comically far, like a ragdoll instead of a giant being as he flopped about the room, then went still as well. Carlos sprawled out flat on his belly, let forth an aggravated sigh. The beeping cut off with a sharp whine. He was still alive, somehow. Well, slap me on the ass and call me Skywalker, he snorted grumpily. When I wished out to be a Jedi growing up, this is definitely what I meant. What is a Skywalker? A voice asked from behind the door that he was still laying near. Finally, some proper English. It was one of the box aliens, now sans most of the boxes. Elegant lines flowed into each other along the streamlined reptilian body. Candy apple red, long snout, and long tail made overlapping plates. Behind her in a rainbow of colors stood at least ten more of the creatures. Other than Hugh, the some slight variations, they all seemed remarkably similar. Well, guess they really were crappy cosplayers. Ugh, it's a famous lion of the Jedi. Uh, they roamed the galaxy and helped those in need, he replied automatically as if he didn't have bigger problems to ask about. They have laser swords and perform daring feats in battle. He pressed one palm to his wet forehead. Then it is a great honor to meet a Jedi of the sky, they said. I am Shah 95, he, her, leader of the Gorlians. You have freed us. How can we ever repay you? Well, first off, explain where I am and how you're suddenly speaking English. What would have been a lot more helpful an hour or so ago, he retorted, although it was half-hearted at best. And where Earth is, because I only pay for four days of parking and I'm not paying extra fees just because an alien has a stormtrooper fetish. Everything on his body ached, even as he quipped. What he really needed was a gallon of water to chug, and a shower, and a nap. I shall answer all of that I can. Why don't you explain what exactly a, a stormtrooper is? Carlos closed his eyes and leaned back and went on to explain his favorite film franchise of all time. End of story. 2042. Caught in 4K. Written by I Am The Hype TFS. Nah, so you finally caught Mickey. Looks like he took a piece of you with him along with the rest of your mates though, huh? Can't fault you for it. Even we had trouble finding him when we found a good place to nest. Now, judging from what I heard, I'm thinking Nick took out three of you with his sidearm before you got him. Hugh definitely made mincemeat out of the last five of you pieces of bird crap. Hugh got an ear for the sound of buckshot impacting flesh after hearing it enough times. And, and I know Nicky cleared out the rest of you. But you want to know the truth. I am glad one of you feckers made it back. Captain Herman Reed, age 50, sat in his cell with his arms behind his head. A total ease in front of his captor. An avian whose once vibrant green feathers were now smeared with dirt and blood. Its arm hung limply at its side, a gaping wound in the shoulder from a sniper's rifle, rendering the limb useless. 
But defection, I care what you think, you damned ape. Your comrades died fighting while you surrendered with firing a shot like a coward. I guess the fabled courage of human soldiers were all told about was just more of your propaganda to avoid getting into fights you couldn't win. Strix practically squawked out an enraged response due to frustration and pain, which nearly sent Reed into a laughing fit. The avian couldn't decide whether the human complete lack of reaction to the deaths of men that he'd supposedly served for years with was an incredibly good bluff or the man was side psychopath and he wasn't sure which one was more unnerving. You still don't get it, do you? Even after you didn't manage to catch my boys off guard when the shuttle touched down and they booked it into the forest. It's almost like, and please let me know if this is too much for that bird brain of yours to handle, we knew that what your plan was. My team is damn good, and but even in our heyday, taking out a squad of almost triple our numbers wouldn't have been easy if we got blindsided like that. And seeing as I'm sitting here going grey, my pals are dead, and you managed to crawl back here, this clearly isn't our heyday. The expression on Reed's face was full of contempt, but not the kind usually flavored with anger or malice. No, this look clearly told Strix, that about the human thought of how you stupid. Impossible. No one could have known our plans. We made sure there were no leaks before the operation. Strix almost stopped wrapping what was left of his shoulder as his mind reeled at the humans claimed. Reed dismissively waved his protests off. Keep your beak shut, you walking cuckoo clock, and I'll fill you in on the details. Not like I got anything better to do. But honestly... You must have thought that we were stupid if you didn't think that we knew that you were going to try something. We've been on the brink of war for how many years now? And just when things are about to come to a head, the Union finally greenlights a terror alliance to join. All of a sudden, you dipshits have two months to make something happen before humanity signs the treaty. Or all of your posturing goes up in smoke, cause once we're both in the Union, neither of us can touch the other without a cause. Strix's already large eyes widened as the human perfectly laid out his people's stance, but he remained silent. It was still possible that he was bluffing. After all, it wouldn't take too much thought to make that kind of assumption with the bad blood between their races. No! No outbursts this time. Is the little birdie ready to shut up and listen? Good. Anyway, you proposing us sending a squad down to help the Taybar deal with the supposed insurgents to this planet as a show of good faith before the agreement was made official was idiotic. Anyone with half a brain knows that you've been pulling those sloth strings from behind the scenes for years now. And the Union was even going to shoot down a suggestion, but we wanted to see what you were going to do. After all, we didn't want to get the blue balls after building up all the aggression either. And our guess is that you were gonna wipe out the squad and have the Tabar say that we were killed after running scared from a fight. A show of cowardice like that after we agreed to help out another race might just make the Union rethink and invite it to the table. A long shot, you have to agree, but you didn't exactly have much time to work with, so you went with what you had. Reed didn't even look at Strix as he explained humanity's perspective on the situation not caring to see the reaction of the increasingly distressed alien, though one of his eyes appeared to be fixate on him without the human directing it to, as the other eye looked whichever way he actually seemed to be focusing on. Then, uh, why? If you knew we were going to kill you, why did you agree to come just to die? 
the avian all but admitted to the scheme as he tried to understand the suicidal humans. It wouldn't change anything. The story would still be the same. They would just have to cover up this involvement of the avians, and since the Tabar were already working for them, that shouldn't be an issue. You really didn't do your research on my squad before we joined up, did you? If you had, you would have noticed that we are all about ten years past our sell-by date when it comes to being soldiers. That prior to our mission, we had all but retired from service and reinstated specifically for this operation. You almost might have worked out that Mickey had a spinal fusion, Nick had a bum leg, and Hugh had a bad ticker. If you'd paid any attention at all, you would have seen that none of us were combat ready by any reasonable standard. But we didn't try to hide it because we knew you wouldn't look. You arrogant pricks always think that you are ten steps ahead of everyone else, so why would you even bother? Strix still didn't understand, but he knew something was horribly wrong because Reed was far too calm. Hell, he almost appeared to be enjoying himself. The pride of the avian had was being chipped away as he kept fading to see what the human's plan was. He was the superior race, so why couldn't he work it out? In the end, he could only ask more questions. What about you? You said what was wrong with the others, but what about you? I cancer. Well, more like just cancer now. Once it hits stage four and spreads everywhere, there isn't exactly a point in saying what type it is anymore. I should be wasting away in a hospital bed right now, but the military pumped me full of all kinds of drugs to stave off the symptoms for this job. It's gonna kill me in about, uh, four hours. But I'll take a heart attack over cancer any day of the week. Part of me wishes that they hadn't needed to remove my eyes so, so that I could see the look of defeat in your feather face better. But if they hadn't, the tech guys wouldn't have been able to hook me up with the replacement. You see, usually guys like me wear a patch or get a glass eye. But this puppy is real special. It has got a camera in it and live streaming footage back to HQ. No clue how it works, but the boys in the lab told me that they had to fudge the safety measures to get that kind of range, so the drugs weren't gonna kill me. This thing probably would get me before the cancer did. Gotta thank you for giving me such a clear view of you, ordering those T-bar around, right in front of the cell, and basically confirming everything I said that you were planning on doing. I mean, we weren't in the union yet, so you'd probably get a slap on the wrist for trying to screw us over. But puppet empires have been outlawed for over a century. The way I see it, we're both gonna end up getting the war we wanted. But we'll be in the Union, and you'll be the outsider. Cause I know for a fact that they've been trying to find solid evidence of your controlling the T-Bar for a long time now. But just couldn't find anything concrete until now, that is. Reed smirked at utterly devastated alien. Lee's wounded shoulder all but forgotten, and the blood dripping onto the floor. At this rate, Strix was liable to die from blood loss. Not that the human cared, either way. What is it the kids used to say, uh, caught in 4K, hmm? End of story. Story number two. The Six Trillion Dollar Golem, written by Guncaster. Legends tell of a hellish world without magic as we know it. Of a world where the weave of reality is layered so thick even the most mundane and everyday spells would take the sacrifice of a living creature to have a chance of succeeding. It is said that the planet itself seethes with the cruelty and viciousness. 
that it has such hostile environments, even without magic, the poisons and weapons of its animals rival that of the manticores and basilisks. Worst of all, some madman claimed to have met living, sentient creatures born of such a hellhole. There are delusional minds in this very tavern who believe with all their heart to have seen Magitech born of a world without magic. Magitech, fueled by the fundamental forces of creation, barbarically crude and yet almost elegant in the simplicity. These stories are all absurd, certainly, but you know as well as myself that the incident was too solid for the djinn. That thing moved through the vacuum of the Eighth with the grace of a star dragon and the violent speed of a comet. Yet the Magistars would claim it to be a mere djinn. Now, some would say that it must have been some sort of top-secret Colomancy project the Grand Magistrate had been testing, and the Sham decided to go off the rails for some point. Has any of you ever seen a column made entirely of metal? More importantly, have you ever seen a column move at such speeds, maneuver with such grace, beyond anything a mortal, nay, a sword saint could ever accomplish? Have you ever seen a golem made of metal, or with what seemed to be a gigantic unicorn horn upon its head? I didn't think so. It didn't smell right anyway. It was like the abominable thing siphoned the free-floating matter right up. I could see it with my third eye, just a trail of emptiness wherever it flew. I don't know what's worse, the fact that there are creatures born of a world without magic, that they wrote that golem's name on his forehead, or that they named it Gundam. End of story. 2043 The Day I Met Crime Written by Marco2021 There are a lot of weird things lurking out in the dark of the void. Entities most of us decided could not exist long before we learned better. Creatures that embodied primal fears, emotions, even philosophies. No one made them. They are timeless. We, humanity, might have acknowledged them subconsciously, but to us, they were mostly elements of myth or fiction. Doesn't mean that they didn't stalk the stars, indifferent to our perception of their existence. Just means that we didn't know they were real until we met one. Humanity, oddly enough, is actually in the majority on that score. Still, some species sought their unfathomable natures, calling them to their worlds with prayer and devotion that resonated across vast distances. The Kindlin, for example, believe so strongly in the concept that would name Sonder that the embodiment of the realization appeared before them before they even left dirt. Its effect on their society was profound, molding the Kindlin into the most potent empaths in the galaxy. A blessing and a curse, if you ask me. But that is a whole different story. When Dad first told me about them, the Entities, I never thought that I would meet one, one being to represent nature in all the galaxy. There isn't a sane human alive who expects to actually meet something like persistence, creativity, or life. But as life once said to me, expecting what I'll bring is just a waste of time. Meant that one too, by the way. Time is way more laid back than anyone gives it credit for. All told, though, I had known I was gambling with crime 
I might have just folded instead of going all in. Warwick's world, or as crime liked to call it, home. I thought that I knew what I was getting myself into when I landed on this rock with little more than a hungry belly and a quick eye for an easy mark. After completing primary, I elected to bounce around the cluster. I mostly did what I had to to make a living, but occasionally I indulged in something honest. Before you get any funny ideas, I wasn't out here with some sob story behind me. I liked my family just fine, and they lived nice, long, happy lives. I just was bored to tears living on follicles. Yes, that is the planet's name, and no, the humans there didn't pick it. We just can't pronounce the real name, and that is the closest equivalent that we could find in the translators. Morwick's world, on the other hand, was more to my speed. Something was always happening there. When I touched down and smelled that heady mix of garbage, ship fuel, and whatever that weird crap as they pump into the Atmo to keep the weather stable, I knew that I was going to like it here. I mean, peaks, it's just 300 meters from the entrance to the spaceport, and there is no finer vice market anywhere in that arm of the galaxy. If there is any planet that makes you learn the ins and outs of its underbelly, it's Warwick's. I was lucky to have bounced around a bit before landing here. If I had gone there straight from Follicles, I might have run home with my tail between my legs. Fortunately, I think for me, that home was four years and nine planets back by the time I landed. Suffice to say, I spent a good few months getting myself settled. First, on the docket was this place to crash, and after a rather excellent distraction, I secured a place above the bar and peaks. I call it a little steel, but that would imply that my name isn't listed on the documentation for residents, and I dare anyone to prove it's not. After that, it was getting myself a line of steady income, which was easy, given that I lived above a bar. Running booze isn't glamorous, but it is a pretty secure job. You also hear a lot of gossip which can be turned into profit if you are in the right establishment. Kit Gru's, my bar, was absolutely the right establishment. So by the time the local yearly hawk occurred tournament came around, I was flush with spending money. For those of you who have not set foot on a planet like Warwick's, Hawkeker is an old-school kind of card game blown out of proportion to match the size of the galaxy. Every round of pots, the table changes decks and rules. As players get eliminated, the decks and rules change more often. By the time you're down to two players at the table, you'll switch decks and rules every two hands. You have to know a lot of card games and a lot of rules to be good at Hawkeker. I consider myself a fair hand at the game. There are some sets out there that a human can't play well with, like the ultraviolet deck from the Shothan. Can't even see the damn card values, let alone know if I'm holding a can win. Or the digitized barcoded codes of the Zucks. Incomprehensible. The way you play those hands is to read the player. The longer you force a game to go, the more you learn. And I can set me a mean game of Hawkaker. Hours and end. Not everyone is cut out for it, but the best players find a way. I took a week off from Vu's running and joined the tournament for the fun of it. These things usually take a long to play out. The perfect amount of time for a vacation that might make me money, even if I got knocked out early. I could still bet on the table outcomes to make some extra credits. Hell, that's how I won the pink slip from my grav bike. Now, I might be pretty good at the game, but I was no pro. When I found myself at one of the semi-final tables, I was surprised as anyone else. Sure. It wasn't uncommon for a human to make it as far as I had, but it was weird for someone as young as I was. You mostly see an old gambler sitting in that chair, not a prodigy such as myself. I'm kidding. 
Back then, the only person who didn't see me as a naive kid was me. I knew I might be in over my head, but there was no way that I was going to just back out. Backing out might have been the smart move for my skill, but I wouldn't be where I am now if I played it smart. No. Instead, I threw myself into the game with the recklessness of my youth. The table looked innocuous enough, ten beings looking at secure five spots for the final table. Sitting with me were two kindlin, who are excellent gamblers given what their people can do. Hey, but arg, their gambling claim to fame, so to speak, is their fractal thinking patterns. A shotted, not so different from us mentally, just see different light spectrums. Three zleks, computer intelligences that print themselves organic bodies for some reason. And a teak, a horrifying four meter tall insect thing that haunt my dreams. But a perfectly nice fuck. The last player at the table was, of course, you've guessed it by now, crime. Entities don't usually have fixed forms, but over the ages, most have picked the form that they like to inhabit, when they aren't thinking to look like anything else. For the consumption of the galaxy at large, that tends to be something archetypal. For example, believe it or not, time actually does like looking like a clock and swirling winds of sand that act as manipulators. It even sets alarms for itself on itself and has to shut itself off. I told you it was laid back. Crime is not like most of its compatriots. Crime doesn't inhabit some abstract shape or a difficult perceived void cloud thing like despair. Crime looks exactly like the rest of us. On proper racial homeworlds, it joins the ranks of that race, indistinguishable from any of the other members of that species. On Warwick's world, however, it cuts loose. It relaxes into a form it enjoys most. And I don't know if I'm proud or ashamed to say that it chooses to become one of us, a human. Before you think crime is putting some kind of cheap trick, appearing to be whatever race its observer happens to be, let me assure you, crime doesn't do that. It's not deception or illusion. Crime's relaxed form just so happens to be a plain-looking everyday human guy. Fit, just the beginnings of grey at the temples and flashing a lopsided grin, Traveling between planets or relaxing on Warwick, it looks human. So I hope you'll forgive me as I tell my little tale, and if I refer to it as a hymn, I've only stuck to the practice thus far out as respect for the other entities. Not all of them have understand the concept of gender. Crime, on the other hand, he'll yell at you if you call him a it, even though it's true. When we finally got to business playing Hawker, I was damn near giddy. If I got knocked out during this round, I would still leave the table with double the spending money that I put in. If I somehow won past the final table, I might as well quit my job for a year and leave somewhere fancier than crash pad. I mean, it was never going to happen, but one could hope for it all the same. The game started rather well. The three Zlex competed against one another early, considering each other were the only real rivals at the table. The Kindlin slowly played things while they learned what they could from the table's emotional patterns. The Arg, the Tig, had to struggle a bit with decks that they didn't know. But the Shotan and I managed to keep our chips balanced against the real threat. Crime. Crime is an amazing Hawker, and I'm not just the reason you might guess. Crime doesn't enjoy cheating at games when he's playing on Warwick's. It all boils down to the reason why Crime calls Warwick's world home. The planet doesn't have much in the way of laws. Only few things are actually criminal. The things that are tend to be treaded into the territory of other entities. Homicide, for example, is illegal at the galaxy all over. 
But you have to really piss crime off to get him to step on murder's toes. To that end, crime doesn't have to embody himself in any real way while living here. And when crime is being himself, he just so happens to be the best damn player on the planet. It's what happens when you have a literal lifetimes to master a game that gets new deck every other century. There are decks in there that only crime has ever seen because the races that introduced it are gone. I'd call it unfair, but like I said, on Warwick's world, crime hates to cheat. The rest of us, on the other hand, were not so noble. We all slowly learned who the real shark at the table was, and it quickly became apparent that if we wanted to have any chance at the final table, we needed to gang up on crime here and now. Unfortunately, it was not to be. Fatigue lost half her chips to crime when an oblique rule changed the hand that she was sure she could win into a complete mess. Seeing the end, she intentionally sacrificed her remaining chips to one of us. I told you they were nice people. The next players to fall were one of the Kindland and one of the Zlecks. The early game left them in less than ideal positions, and the rest of us had no choice but to bait them into a big hand that crime folded on. We needed the chips, and they were unlikely to be much use except as a bank in which crime could draw on. With seven of us left, it transitioned into a true mid-game. Crime had the chips to enforce a bit of his will on us, but the rest of us were determined to drop him. If you ever watched a gambling tournament on the vids before, you know how these things go. Some back and forth, but it's mostly waiting for the right rules and the right hand. We lost another's lex here, and a third saw the opportunity to pull its resources for a solid push against crime. We are down to six, and it was at this point when I realized I was hopelessly out of my depth. I was barely hanging on. I played boldly and a few risky hands and won, but the grind was wearing me down. The only reason I was still in the game was that I'd won most of my hands when I went head-to-head -head against crime. I just didn't have the chips really to make him pay. Problem was, while I had the record of success they needed, the rest of the table couldn't afford to throw hands to provide me the chips that I needed to win. It was an odd stalemate. I forced the game to last another half an hour while I tried to figure out a means to bring him low. I tried my best, but sometimes it seems bad luck just bites you in the ass. I haven't met luck yet, so I didn't know how he feels about that idiom. Now, I want to tell you that I went down in a blaze of glory, that I was dealt a near-perfect hand that was nearly impossible to lose, only to have my victory snatched away by the one hand that could achieve victory. But that simply was not the case. The truth is, the rest of the table carefully passed me cards. Just because cheating wasn't illegal didn't mean that you could get away with it if you were caught, in the hopes of assembling a perfect hand. We got close, and I was confident that I'd learned how to read crime. I had won more hands against him than I'd lost. At this time, I was holding the near-perfect hand. Then Lady Luck kicked my teeth in, Also, I thought. To tell you that I was stunned might be oversetting it, not to mention a bit dramatic, but I'll say it anyway. I was stunned. He had that one hand that could win. It seemed impossible, but there it was. The whole time we were betting, he looked angry. That's how he got when he realized that he was going to lose a hand. Mad. That's how I knew that I had better cards. I wouldn't find out why until after the tourney was over. Crime didn't win, by the way. He seemed too angry to win after our table closed. You see, I'd managed to force him to do the one thing that he hated doing while he was in Warwick's. I'd forced him to cheat. The first thing he did after getting knocked out on the final table was fight me. It was like a man on a mission. 
I saw him power-stalking his way through the crowd at me, and I'm not ashamed to say that I ran from him. Entities have palpable aura when the mood is upon them, and not knowing what was going on, I did everything I could think of to get away. You can imagine how well that worked. After all, I didn't know that he was crime yet. I managed to make it all the way home before he caught up to me. I screamed something incoherent at him as I locked down my door just as he reached it. Whoa, whoa, calm down, he said through the door. I'm not here to hurt you or anything. I just want to talk. You want to talk? I asked incredulously. You look like you want to kill me. I assure you, nothing is further from the truth. With that, crime broke into my apartment like the lock wasn't even there. He was crime. Breaking and entering is quite like breathing to him. That aura I was talking about before was in full effect and in my face. I felt like stealing something, breaking something. I started with trying to beam him with my bat, but he took it from me. Stop that, he sighed and looked over the gold piece of wood. My dad gave it to me when I was left home, and I'd somehow managed to keep it through all the ports I've traveled. I'm not mad at you. I certainly don't want to hurt you. I'm here to offer you a job. You want? I asked, dumbfounded. As soon as he offered the bat back to me, I realized that he didn't exactly look the same as when we were playing Hawker. This crime didn't have the gray in his hair and the unshaven face. He was taller, and his clothes were better too. He'd gone from scruffy gambler to upstanding con man in a short journey from Peak's best gambling hall to my crash pad. It's been a long time since someone gave me. I was mad at myself for resorting to cheating against you. I'd forgotten you humans were so good at it. He laughed and he ran his fingers through his hair. In fact, the last one who did it looked like this. He's the one who taught me the human deck in when I got introduced to Hawkaker. That was like a thousand years ago. No one lives that long. Oh, uh, I, I should probably introduce myself. I'm crime. Crime what? J just crime. I'm everyone's crimes. Like when you stole that pack of flavored chewing rubber when you were nine. Or when you stole the grav car for a jaw aid when you were 14. Or drank your neighbor's wine with your friends and got drunk and ended up vomiting on that monument on the green. Or when you picked someone's pocket to get a ticket to come here. What? How did you- I told you. I'm crime. And you want me to be your partner? Yes. I could use a good partner. And... Man, what are we going to do? Just bounce around the galaxy committing crimes until we're bored? I said as a joke. But he just nodded at me. Like, that was the whole idea. I have a job that needs doing, and I could use some non-boring company. You humans are just the best. So fluid on what counts as criminal and what doesn't. I haven't had one as a partner since uh, Joquith Warwick declined to continue and passed away. Wait, Warwick? As in Warwick's world, yes, that Warwick. He bought this planet with the money he made working with me. It was the stuff of legend. Jokuth Warwick appeared out of nowhere and bought a whole terraformed world for himself. What was normally the domain of governments, instead a private citizen swooped in and bought a planet. And here stood someone who claimed to have enabled that. Everyone who came to this world knew the story, and had even heard rumors about how he did it. And it all boiled down to one word. Crime. You ever have one of those moments where everything hinges on a single decision? The kind of choice that changes everything for you, no matter what you pick. This one was mine. Can you guess what I said? I'll give you three tries, and the first two don't count. <laughs> Just kidding. 
What would you say to someone when you're still trying to wrap your head around the idea that an entity is offering you a job? Answer, you say the first thing that pops into your head. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Crime laughed it off, and before I knew it, I was asking a million questions. In the end, though it all came down to two words, the decision. So, what do you say? Partners? He held out his hand. Feck yeah, I agreed, taking his hand. I may be sitting in a jail cell right now, but I still think that it was the best decision I ever made. I'm not going to be here long. It's a crime to break people out of prison on this world, you know. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Andrical, Dragzoon WRE, Ollie's sister, Ambrose Cattell, and Quantum Wednesday. Thank you very much.